0: Take a look on back a few decades past to a simpler time to be when your cares were tied to a fun car ride and the next show on TV. So crank on up your boombox jams and flip your feet to. That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that thrusts its fists against the posts and still insists it sees the ghost. I am the eater of worlds, Chris. Uh, And I'm just going to go with that I'm Ben. (laughs) And Ben, we're back. This is exciting. We're still fresh in season two. It's the time of the school year where you're not jaded yet, right? You're still excited to see all your friends and you're back and you're not like, when is this next break going to happen?
1: Oh, absolutely. And at the time of recording, we have just actually started proper the month of October, which means like if you were in school, you were starting to be like, oh, here's what I'm thinking for Halloween. We're like, oh, when are you going to be like, and coordinating your sleepovers and all that kind of stuff. Very exciting time of the school year. You know, we talked about Class of
0: 80s High last time and mentioned uh, costumes. I don't think we ever mentioned a favorite costume of ours. Just real quick, Ben, did you have a favorite costume? I'll, I'll say mine was Freddy Krueger. I got the claw. I had, like, the rubber mask. I had the fedora. I was very excited what, to be
1: Freddy. Was this a homemade claw, or, like, did you buy one, you know, from, like, the Halloween At store? At the
0: store. A prop- and guess what? I still have it. I still have the claws. In my closet right now. Oh
1: my god. It's not in a furnace wrapped in an oily rag down in your basement. Yeah. <laughs> As you might know, most of the people I befriend are usually twice my height. So, yeah. with my very tall friend David in sixth grade, we took a refrigerator box and we made a Star Destroyer from Star Wars. Wow. So he was like the big con tower in the back, and I was like the little hump in the front. What? And we marched in a parade as a as a Star Destroyer. It was awesome. That's, that's creative. It was great. I was yeah. pretty excited about it.
0: I thought you guys would have been like C3PO and R2D2 okay, to I'm short, accentuate but I'm not the heights. That's short.
1: I mean, my God. <laughs> no, but that's a good one that I actually have a picture of. I might throw that one up on our Insta since it's the season. So I'll, I'll get that one out there. It's a good one. We have someone special on the show
0: today, and I'm dying to know what her costume is, but dying I need to introduce her first.
1: to know. Dying.
0: <laughs> we are so thrilled to have Allison Dixon on the podcast today, a dear friend of mine and author of works such as the horror book, Strings. There's The Other Mrs. Miller, which is a domestic thriller book. She's got a bunch of short stories. She's got noir detective, dark fiction, uh, all the amazing things. Allison Dixon, welcome to the show.
2: I'm so excited to finally be on. I uh, am a fan of the show. L- Longtime listener, first time caller. Woo! Yes, you. yes. Uh, you know, I came on because Chris asked me, but honestly, it was an even bigger yes, because I love this show. Ah,
1: and I've gotten to
2: do a deep dive doing my day job and absolutely fell in love with it. And... As I was telling Chris uh, earlier, spent some time screaming at my radio, uh, things that I wanted to say. <laughs> exactly. Like I, right? Were you punching uh, your steering
0: wheel? That's Ben's right, favorite. Eh, Did eh,
2: you punch his eh, steering eh, wheel? Exactly. Like I said, it was like it's William Shatner on Rescue 911. <laughs> oh, it's right? Matthew oh, McConaughey. It's gonna haunt oh. me forever. Matthew
0: McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey. William
1: Shatner. Oh, yeah, so I
2: mean, but that's just a sign of the engagement level of the show. So I am very, very happy to be here. I don't do that with every podcast. So
1: well, and it's but it's important to be we have to like do these disclaimers for our listeners but you are only saying these things because we bought roughly 300 copies of your books so yes, you were really you. sort of paid to paid say promotion yeah. right.
2: <laughs> thank you for boosting my amazon ranking no <laughs> did you
0: have a favorite costume as like a youngster
2: yes uh when i was a little kid i was uh the wicked witch of the west yes. the most Did you do green, like, face paint and everything? A few times, yeah. And then one year, my mom bought me one of these. It was like a nylon mask. It was almost like printed pantyhose, like women's nylons. It went over the face, and it had, like, very creepy witch features. I was going to say, that sounds scarier than, like, a mask. Yeah, it was really and it was easy to breathe in though so i was able to throw that on and go trick-or-treating and this was
1: this was pre-house not post-house witch like you were a witch not a house with stockings sticking
2: out of it no i was i (laughs) i wish i had thought of that but no i just love being the witch i love the pointy hat and the black dress and speaking of which we did ask the class of 80s
0: did you have any favorite like 80s franchises being movies like nightmare on elm street or was it a book that we're talking about today, TV show, games, toys, all that kind of stuff. Oh,
2: my gosh. Since we're already talking about Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger, huge influence. I was introduced to it way too early. Relating to you guys a bit there, my brother was born in 1974, so I got to live the 80s more through him and his lens on things. And so I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street with him when I was, what, seven. In fact, my (laughs) obsession was such that – I ran up my parents' phone bill calling the Freddy Krueger hotline.
0: Freddy line, you called the hotline? <laughs> There's a Freddy
2: hotline? There, there was. was it was like hotline. 1977 Fred or something yeah. like that. But I called it. I didn't realize it cost money. And so I kept calling so I could talk to Freddy. And my parents got a $300 phone bill. <laughs> they blamed my brother. And they interrogated him for hours. And he didn't break. And then finally... I broke because I couldn't stand to see him being punished. And I said, I called Freddy. It was me. And my parents just, they were able to get the charges reversed. Thank goodness. It's
0: like the twisted Nintendo power <laughs> hotline, I think is what it is. Like, that's basically what you called. I remember that.
2: You call it, it's just a recording like, I'm Freddy Krueger and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I mean it was, it was like 99 cents a minute or something like that. And yeah, it added up. But yeah, the first horror franchise I remember watching It's stuck and to me is still very instrumental in addition to who we'll be talking about today.
0: Yeah, and, and another classmate mentioned Friday the 13th. I think those were the two big 80s horror franchises. Halloween as well, but I, for some reason in my mind, I feel like these two are pretty strong. We had um, another listener said, whenever a TV show or cartoon had a Halloween special. So they mentioned like Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Oh, yeah, Great Pumpkin, absolutely. Garfield at a Halloween adventure. You know we love Garfield on this show. We talk about Garfield all the time. It's oh my of gosh. our favorite properties. We also, speaking of horror, we need to talk about Gorefield at some point in Gore-field. time. My goodness. Oh, oh amazing
2: i didn't even know about that i'm gonna have to look that up oh god
0: please go down that rabbit hole there's also uh <laughs> another listener also mentioned great pumpkin charlie brown but also roseanne now i remember loving the roseanne episodes they made like a haunted house in their like the kids walk through yeah. the living room and into the kitchen I wanted to go through that house as a kid, oh, right? Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Fitting for a book, somebody mentioned In a Dark, Dark Room and other scary stories in elementary school. I remember in, I have a memory of being in second grade and we would read these scary stories, like the green ribbon where the woman takes the ribbon off her head and her yes, head falls off. Yes, my mom off.
2: told me that story when it's I was terrified. a kid.
0: I loved that stuff. Terrified me. Yeah. Loved it. And then more contemporary, but this listener said, if you count The Simpsons' 1989 debut, then Treehouse of Horrors all day long. I was trying to think of The Simpsons for this. So it technically comes a little bit later, but that has a big hallmark. And then last, but perhaps not least, E.T. They go
2: trick-or-treating. E.T. in the ghost costume.
0: Come
2: on! Now I immediately want Reese's Pieces. Every there's there is a Pavlovian. <laughs> Can we not go down the Reese's Pieces freaking rabbit hole this again? Episode with this episode is brought oh to God. you by
1: Royces Poises. Royces Poises, the <laughs> Ricky's candy pickies that you know so well and love. Ah, great, great
0: memories from the yeah. class of '80s highs. Uh, thank you everybody for submitting those, and let's create some new memories—terrifying, chilling, nightmarish memories. I think we need to get into Stephen King's It, the masterpiece, the monster. What do you guys say?
1: I totally agree. But before I find out how we're going to make my stomach churn, I'm going to need something in there to churn it. So I'd love to know what's going on today at lunch. Oh, we need those homeroom announcements. Attention 80s high.
0: I'm Jim, and I'm here to share today's homeroom announcements. You know, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Please follow the 80s High podcast on Instagram to make sure you're not missing anything. Today's lunch menu will be corn dogs and tater tots and jello pudding pops for dessert. Have you recently joined Adams College and pledged with Lambda 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 or the Omega Moose and you're missing out on your old high school days? If so, try joining the class of 80s High. You can take sweet quizzes, suggest show topics, and share other memories and opinions on the 80s, which we'll read on the show. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80S. After school today, join the Fighting Mogwise Chess Club as they take on the ghoulies of Bayside High. Thank you and have a bodacious day. Go Mogwise. All right, guys, what do you say? Do we head... Down the hall to history class and learn where these nightmares began.
1: Yes, let's do it. I'm going to go into a library. I'm going to ride a bike. I'm going to crawl into a sewer. I'm going to go into the sewer of the sewer to find out what (laughs) what this was all about. All right. The
2: sewer of the sewer. That's a good way to put it.
0: Oh, what is a sewer sewer? That's terrifying. I also love that Ben did a Nickelodeon's Double Dare obstacle yes. course to get to this did, Of class. course, why
2: not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> you have green slime all over you. Look at oh, this. very <laughs> fitting. slime in this.
0: So, so fitting. Okay. <laughs> if you don't know what the story of It is, or it's been a while, It is a novel by Stephen King that follows two intertwining storylines of seven friends who call themselves the Losers Club. And it follows them as they, in the town of Derry, Maine, are terrorized by an evil entity that lives in the sewer system. It often appears in the form of Pennywise the Dancing Clown, but adopts many other forms and disguises to prey on its victims' greatest fears. The Losers Club battles It twice, once as children in the summer of 1958, and again as adults in the summer of 1985, when they must return to Derry, a town they had left and forgotten, to relive their worst memories and finally end its reign of terror. And I'm going to put question mark. (laughs) There's a couple clues in this book that it may not be over. Absolutely. We'll probably talk about chemistry. So what was King's inspiration for this story? At its very basic, he remembered the story of Three Billy Goats Gruff. There's a troll under a bridge that wants to eat these
1: goats as they cross over.
2: Yeah, he wanted to go under the town rather than under the bridge.
1: I had that book as a child, and my mom read Three Billy Goats Gruff to me a lot. I remember that book. Did it scare you? It's terrifying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and to Allison's point, like, rather than under a bridge, it's under the city, and... Another big influence for King was the history and mythology of the sewer system of Bangor Maine, yeah. which Derry is modeled after. The town of Derry's fictional town shows up in a lot of King's works, whether mentioned or in real life. And so that was another huge inspiration for him. In addition, he said that I never really saw myself as a horror writer. I had mm-hmm. been characterized as one, and I had written some books, you know, that were considered horror. And so this book was sort of him saying, you know what? If I'm a horror writer, I'm going to include every monster in this book. This will be my final exam on horror, as he puts it. Mm. We're putting in anything. Frankenstein, mummy, leper, mm-hmm. werewolf, all of this stuff. I'm going to jam it all into one book. If that's who you think I am, boy, am I going to give it to you. Okay? And that's <laughs> kind of what he <laughs> delivers, right? <laughs> Allison, you mentioned there are several books that really influenced... King and you know them well because offline I said Allison how much of King's work have you consumed and your answer was about ninety nine percent all wow. the things. all yeah. the things wow would you call yourself a king of file <laughs>
2: yes okay. yes
0: so we we have a, a true expert so there were books <laughs> that uh, I think he talks about this in his um, on writing book yeah but what what were some of those influences that he acknowledged
2: interestingly enough uh, a lot of King's inspirations are from more modern horror authors. But one of his main influences for getting started as a young writer uh, was H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. Although their styles are very different. And in fact, in on writing, uh, King kind of criticizes Lovecraft's writing style, which, you know, he, it's of a different era. You know, if you read anything from it's pre twentieth century, pros, right? Very purple. It's very much before the class of show don't tell sort of became popularized, and and of course, King's villains are more internal based versus you know Lovecraft, who was all about the monster, the cosmic unknown. Yeah, uh, and it is definitely the biggest showcase of the Lovecraftian version of the cosmic horror. These sort of beings from another dimension or outer space that have come Mm -hmm. to influence us. And to quote Stephen King from On Writing, now that time has given us some perspective on his work, I think it is beyond doubt that H.P. Lovecraft has yet to be surpassed as the 20th century's greatest practitioner of the classic horror tale. And so around 1960... A young Stephen King came across an old paperback edition of Lovecraft's The Lurking Fear and Other Stories Mm. that pretty much opened the way for him and a lot of writers of that era where uh, you could talk about the horrifying. Interestingly enough, Lovecraft was inspired by Edgar Allan Poe, Mm
1: -hmm. who was also a big
2: inspiration for King, uh, especially in his short stories, but also to show more connections between King and Lovecraft... Both are New England natives who tend to set their stories there. They've created their own towns, their own rivers, their own landmarks, and made New England sort of their own universe. And so much of Lovecraft is called throughout King's works. So a very, very big influence there.
0: Well, and even a universe, right? King created a macroverse that ties a lot of his works together. Yes, when you think about Call of Cthulhu and the Necronomicon and a lot of that stuff, H.P. Lovecraft, all of his stuff is kind of set in that same larger universe. That yes. may or may not interconnect in some way. So, But the nexus, you're right, is all in those New England towns.
2: Yeah, like you have Derry of Castle Rock, which is another main setting for Stephen King's stories. And then, interestingly, one of King's most reappearing villains, he doesn't appear in It, but Randall Flagg comes in The Stand, The Dark Tower, which all reference It in some way, shape, or form, is a callback to a Lovecraft character from The Call of Cthulhu. I'm going to really mangle this pronunciation uh, Ladohep or Lattotep uh, oh Nyarlathotep can- we go oh, way, okay. way <laughs> back yeah. oh, me and Nyarlathep old friends <laughs> old yes, <Frist>. yes. Oh, <laughs> that <laughs> guy's a character <gasps> Uh but yeah I mean it's the same thing he takes a human form he travels around sowing chaos uh getting devotees Randall Flagg shows up in a lot of Stephen King stories so that is really a direct reference and some even say that Flagg is just an iteration of Nyarlathep And
0: Arkham is the main city, or the main town, I should say, that Lovecraft works with, right? Which, of course, you know, there's like Arkham Asylum, which is well protected by
1: Batman. Exactly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Him and George Miller working together.
2: Lovecraft influenced that, too. I mean, it's so, you know, we could talk about, of course. Lovecraft not being a great guy. And he suffered a lot of mental ills and physical ills and racism and, oh, you know, lots of things. He, he is not an easy person. But I think we can, in this case, at least say, as a kid coming across those works, you're not thinking of, oh, is this an anti-Semite? Uh, you know, but you're saying like, oh, we're talking about monsters coming into the world. And you can look at it that way. And uh, King has actually several short stories and books that reference or call to Lovecraft in some way his book From a Buick 8 the Dark Tower series there's a whole list uh, that I found I told Chris about this one the other day called N just the letter N and his collection Just After Sunset is the most Lovecraftian Stephen King short story his body of work very much influenced by cosmic horror it is sort of the you know, so to speak, king of Uh, those references. King's (laughs) it is the king of ah, Uh, Inception. Mind blasting.
0: Uh, And I think we can't get out of this episode and not say that a huge inspiration or influence on this work and a lot of King's earlier works is cocaine and alcohol. Absolutely. (laughs) We need to be very clear. No, we need to be very clear. We joke about this in a lot of our episodes about how everyone was on Coke in the 80s who created stuff, movies, TV, books. This is no exception.
2: King has always been a very wordy guy. He's always written very meaty tomes. And he did this after he was off cocaine as well. But I mean, this is his second longest book. It's how many pages, Chris? 1138 pages. It's his second longest after The Stand. And the whole structure of it and everything reflects, I think, someone who is being driven externally. King has been very open about his substance abuse. And it came out in 1986. It was the second to the last book that he wrote before he went to rehab and got clean. Mm. You can sort of go back and look at it retrospectively. And when you realize that you were reading the work of someone who is using this way, it becomes even more kind of a fascinating study, I guess, because there is so much going on with the structure of this book. I've often called it A masterclass of plotting. And I don't think everybody could pull this off the way that he does, uh, because he doesn't do it linear. It's sort of like entering a miasma of events and like a cloud of horror. Thank you. That's the phrase I needed when trying to unwrap the
1: story. Miasma of events, I think (laughs) is the best way. You just have to go with it. Because I said, you know, to quote
2: Clueless, It's like a Monet. It's, you know, looks great from far away. But once you get up close, it's a big old mess. Uh, But you just do not want to think too much about it. A clueless quote is not what I expected in our It episode. (laughs) But I'm so
0: thrilled it just happened. (laughs) And it's fitting.
2: I mean, it holds together, you know, plot wise. There's no holes there that I can recall. But that's the magic, Right. You don't recall it detail by detail, do you, Yes. I mean, like when you were reading it too.
0: Yeah, we'll get into this. Some of the themes of this book is about memory. And to me, it's like part of reading this book is you don't have a firm memory of what happened because of this miasma of events. That's our new (laughs) tagline.
2: And I always tell people like you just have to fall into it and not try to question it too hard. Just let it pull you along. It's like an undertow. You know, you just let it. You got to go with it. And you'll understand it, uh, eventually. But it does, I think, reflect that sort of, I guess, the lack of inhibition and anxiety that comes when people are probably using a substance that sort of drops those things down as a writer. Yeah. I think about how I could have written this book. I do not use the – I don't use cocaine. Uh, just saying that right now. Not a we're cocaine user. We're of our minds right uh, now. So I'm sorry. And thanks I, for balancing I, us out. Yeah, you know, uh, I do enjoy the cocktails, but I don't write while well under the influence of anything because it just – I can't think straight. Hmm. So thinking of how he did that, I can't figure it out. It's mind boggling.
1: So you're saying it is the second to last novel he did before going into rehab. So it's, I think it's important to note when I look at his bibliography, we're like a third through his novel career about mm-hmm. when we get to it so before this already he has crafted some massive landmark novels that go on to be incredible movies that a lot of us know as well too you've got yes. you've got carrie you've got the shining you've got cujo you've got the running man which is one of my favorite movies from the 80s and <laughs> i bet you 100 we're gonna do it on this show oh yeah. my god i love oh the god. running man oh. Yes. <laughs> At Cemetery. Um, you know, he's already yes. got a lot of these tent pole franchises. The first of the Dark Tower series. The
2: first three of the Dark Tower oh, series. Really? Oh, really? Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: And then Tommy Knockers was his last book before
2: he went clean, right? Yes. And it oh. shows. You can definitely tell in that book that King's addiction had finally started to control him. Is Tommyknockers mm. the airplane
1: one where people lose track of time? No, that's the Langoliers. Tommyknockers, they find
2: a buried UFO in this woman's backyard and they start digging it up and then the town starts becoming influenced by whatever, like, alien force is giving off from this UFO. Oh.
0: Which they also made into a TV series as terrible, well. Terrible, terrible. Yeah, it wasn't good. Uh, it, wasn't even good. it has
2: Jimmy Smiths in it, but even then I can't recommend it. Yeah. But it's a fantastic book, but King himself even says it's a great 300-page novel and about a 900-page novel. Oh, so <laughs> boy. Yeah, he, okay. goes, he goes off the rails. Yeah. But he even says he doesn't remember writing Cujo. He has no memory of it whatsoever. Wow. Yeah, and that's a brutal book. It's actually a very underrated novel, in my opinion. So that is King in a nutshell. And you can see the divergence between if you want to like – Read It and then the Tommyknockers and then go on to Needful Things, which I know there were – I think there was something else in between that. Don't quote me on that. But that was like the official, like, I am no longer on drugs and alcohol book. And then it just diverges from there. So it's a fascinating study if you want to get into King's bibliography. In between them, you've got Misery. It's yes. like a ten pull one in between, the big dude, time. That's that was huge. actually the first Stephen King book I ever read. Um, oh, really? At eleven ah, years
1: old? Yep. Eleven yes. years old reading. Wow. Misery. it's amazing. <laughs> which,
0: by the way, if if you think the movie's brutal, like oh, the, the, the book, book Worse. Is... Oh, like boy. everything in King's Ooh. universe. The movies and the the TV shows pale in comparison to what happens in the actual books. Oh boy, yeah. Which I'm I'm sure we'll get into today. So I I, I do want to bring it back to it, this thing, yes. because it, as you take in this property, I mean, much like. Miasma of events. This is a miasma of manifestations, right? Right. What is this thing? So high level view, it is a cosmic horror, billions of years old, that was birthed in the macroverse outside of our own universe. And it eventually crashes into earth in our prehistoric times.
2: Yes. My
1: brain melted six times while in that sentence. That's, that is a lot. And so well, again- And
2: melted even more, Ben, in our level of the tower- Okay,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> there's a tower in this? Where was the tower? Oh, uh, yeah, we're, 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 we're we'll getting get to, to the dark tower, oh man. we will get there. Yeah.
0: I mean, this is the, to me, the essence of the Lovecraftian influence. It's a cosmic horror that we don't fully understand. And to see it drives you crazy. And that's the dead lights. Yes. If we can say there's a truest form to it, it's the deadlights, this mm-hmm. endless void of pulsating, undulating orange lights. It stuns its victims. It drives them mad. Very Lovecraftian. If you've seen the m- recent movies, they depict it, I think, pretty well. This like long sort of cavern of nothingness with these three dancing orange lights. Mm. It's simple but terrifying. Right. And it is poisoning and kind of clouding this area that eventually is settled and becomes Dairy Main. and it feeds on the fears of its victims. So That's kind of what it is, and as we mentioned, it gets manifested in all these forms, but its most common form is Pennywise the Clown, and there's a reason King chose clowns. I'm going to set this up a little bit, and then Allison has a great article. So this book comes out right after like John Wayne Gacy is doing all of his murders. If you remember, he's a serial killer, murdered 33 young men and boys, and he was a clown performer. He went to children's hospitals and performed as a clown. So that was like right before this. And if you look back, there's a real long history of clowns as tragic figures. And what's really interesting to me is that there's a phobia. Was it coolrophobia? I think is how it's pronounced. It's a fear of clowns. A lot of us find it kind of creepy. I don't know if it's uncanny valley stuff, but some of it that's interesting to me is like, it's more of a reflection of the person behind the makeup. Yes, then the clown itself. And Allison, you found like a really cool historical piece on that.
2: I did. So this is from Smithsonian Magazine. It was all about the history of the creepy clown. And of course, the clown itself has an ancient history going back uh, to ancient Egypt. Also appears in Imperial China, uh, the Hopi Native Americans, Ancient Rome, which they called their clown the Stupidus, which (laughs) sounds made up. uh, That was my nickname (laughs) in high school. Stupidus Maximus. (laughs) (laughs) Not just High School, Chris. No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) But there was a guy named Andrew McConnell-Stott. He was the Dean Undergraduate uh, of Education and an English professor at the University of Buffalo in uh, SUNY. And he wrote... A lot of articles and a book on the history of scary clowns and comedy, including one on the life of Joseph Grimaldi, who was a famous uh, comic pantomime clown in London, way back in the mid 1800s, in the Dickens era. And so he was the prototype of the modern clown. He was the first one to do the white face paint and the colorful costumes. Hmm. He had a blue mohawk. That's very 80s, by the way. right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Some 80s. I think it was so cool in the context of the 1800s to see this yeah. figure. But he had a very tragic life. He had a very abusive father, suffered from bouts of depression. His first wife died in childbirth. His only son was also a clown who died of alcoholism, mm. uh, suffered chronic pain from all of his acrobatics and whatnot. In fact, he used to say his name is Grimaldi, because he's grim all day. Uh, that was the, oh, the joke. dark. Uh, dark. Yeah, Man. yeah. Charles Dickens, then after Grimaldi passed away, edited Grimaldi's memoirs. And of course, it took on a very Dickensian viewpoint. Stott says he imposed a quote unquote strict economy for every laugh he wrought from his audience. Grimaldi suffered from commensurate pain. So that's Ugh. kind of the tone that it took from there. And he credits Dickens for watering the seeds in popular imagination. This is quoting the article of the scary clown. He'd even go so far as to say Dickens invented the scary clown by creating a figure who was literally destroying himself to make his audiences laugh. Ugh. What Dickens did was to make it difficult to look at a clown without wondering what was going on beneath the makeup. Stott says it becomes impossible to dissociate the character from the actor. These were very popular memoirs because Dickens was very popular, of course. And so that image just stuck that we have this happy figure and this makeup that's juxtaposed with this tragic character. But then there was another clown and this was on the heels of Grimaldi. And he was French, Jean Gaspard Debray Perrot P I E R R O T Perrot. He was a clown with a white face paint that was punctuated by red lips and black eyebrows, and used silent gesticulation. So he was a bit like a like how we would see a mime, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he was well known on the streets of Paris, recognized even without his makeup. But where Grimaldi was tragic, Debray was sinister. In 1836. He killed a boy with a blow from his walking stick after the youth shouted insults at him on the street. So the two biggest clowns of the early modern clowning era were troubled men underneath the face paint. Wow! From there, clowns went to the circus and that imagery kind of continued and it sowed a level of distrust between the clown that we see and the man underneath it. So no longer just a court jester or a prankster joking around. Now we can't trust what we see. And I think that's sort of the foundation of the chlorophobia, right? Is that any masked figure creates a sense of fear and distrust in people. Somebody did just get bingo on their it episode because they were waiting for chlorophobia to come up.
1: So thank you for <laughs> dropping that phrase. They were waiting for miasma of events and chlorophobia and now they've
2: got it. Bingo. It is honestly something that I really to as well. I have, I have that deep distrust, but I also collect creepy clown dolls. I like to collect things that scare me. I think that's what attracts people to horror, right? Is that it scares me, but I want to do it anyway. You
0: can definitely see why with this history and then the recent events of the John Wayne Gacy, that this would be a very appealing figure for King's character. He
2: wanted to pick something he knew would scare kids and he went right for the clown.
0: And what's really interesting is you have the darkness of the person that's behind the makeup. And in this, you have the darkness of the entity that's behind the clown. Like, so there's a little bit of a parallel, right? Like, the clown is terrifying enough, but what's behind it, these dead lights and this, like, giant spider, whatever it is, truly terrifying. Yeah. I do want to wrap up history class and just talk about how this novel came into being. So King wrote it between 1980 and 1985, so roughly four or five years on it. It's released September 15th, 1986. As we mentioned, 1138 pages. Second largest work. It is a beast. Uh, what I also remember about this book is the very first cover of it. It's a sewer grate. There's a paper boat. And there's a what I call a green velociraptor claw. Oh, oh, oh great. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah. Yep. I remember being at either like a Walden Books or a B. Dalton Books, one of those bookstores, and seeing that on the probably new release bestseller You know, that main shelf when you first walk into the bookstore. Right. Another interesting thing about this book, the chapters often run into each other. They have dovetailing sentences where at the end of one chapter, it just ends mid-sentence and then picks up in the next one. And it may be the same timeline. It may be a different timeline. It's a miasma, folks. We've already said it. It's a miasma. And what's also interesting is, and we'll talk about this with the movies, like chapter one is the kids. Chapter two is mostly the adults with some kid flashbacks. Yeah, this is time drifting back and forth, and intertwining. The stories are almost running parallel, but twisted together, almost like the strands of DNA, right? Like kind of twist. Oh
2: yeah, together. that's a great shape, like a double helix. That is yeah, perfect. that's perfect. It, it feels like
0: such that the battles as kids and the battles as adults happen simultaneously in the books, mm-hmm. uh, which again is a different structure than the miniseries, and certainly different from the movie, which we're going to talk about. So there's a really kind of that sense of playing with time. We're going to refer to some groups. So there's the Seven Friends who are the Losers Club. Bill is the leader. Beverly Marsh, she's the one who injures It with the Silver Slugs, both in the miniseries. That doesn't happen. She's captured by It in the Deadlights right. in the movie version. Ben Hanscom, he's the builder. He's the one who kind of comes up with the idea to build the dam and the barrows. He also has a thing for Beverly. Richie Tozier's the jokester. Beep, beep, Richie. The wisecrack. Eddie Kasparak, he's a hypochondriac. The inhaler. <laughs> hypochondriac. But uh, in the book, he's also the human compass. Like yes. he just has like a sense of direction. Stan Uris, he's a birdwatcher. I think he's, I don't know if he's a boy scout in the book, but he is in the miniseries. Uh, but he's the one who, when he gets the phone call from Mike and the as an adult, he, he kills himself. He cannot yeah, bring yeah. himself to revisit this horror, and he cuts his wrist in the bathtub.
2: He was the more timid and quiet of the group, yeah. and I think you know that's what probably sent him in the direction of the group in the first place, was because he was an outcast in his own way. Yeah. And then you have Mike Hanlon. He's the historian. He's kind of the last friend
0: to join the group. He's a little bit of the outsider. He's actually... He doesn't even live in town, I think, in the movie. Yeah, like he, I,
2: in, and in the book, he lives out in the country.
0: And he's like the last friend to join. That's right around when they have the epic rock fight oh, with the Bowers. Oh, the rock
2: Bowers, fight, yes. The Bowers
0: gang. And of course, he's the one who stays in Derry this entire freaking time for 27 more years. He's the one who calls everybody back.
2: He's the one that didn't have the luxury of forgetting the travesties uh, and the tragedy and the horror, which is kind of metaphorical in its own way, honestly. He has the burden of living with that for
0: three decades. We have the Bowers gang. So Henry Bowers is that main bully in high school who comes back in adulthood and he's got some friends in his gang that are terrorizing our heroes, our protagonists. Mm -hmm. And then of course we have Pennywise as the entity and in the books, we're going to hear about the turtle and the other. And we're going to get into those. So those are some other, again, macro characters yeah, that come Yeah, I have so in. many questions about this space turtle that I've heard about oh, before. So I want questions. to talk all about it. So It's great. To lead into chemistry, what I just want to say is a lot of you probably haven't read this book. It's a beast, as we've mentioned. So what we're going to be talking about from just a pure storyline is we're going to kind of interchange talking about the 1990 miniseries the 2017, 2019 movies with this book, because the core story is really all the same. There might be nuances and differences and all that kind of stuff, but the core story is all there. Nothing really gets peeled away from that in any of its versions. And so we're going to talk about this interchangeably just to make it as accessible as possible. Right. Right now, we have to make our way to chemistry class.
1: I'm going to take my little paper boat on the way there.
0: So you just took a paper
1: boat, no obstacle course? Well, I did have to, uh, what, did, what does he say? What did I have to coat it
2: in? Paraffin. 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 Thank you, I did
1: coat it in paraffin. paraffin. But do you have an
2: arm? Do you Both of your arms, are they intact? That's a good question. I lost in the suit, and I was like, "Nah, I'm just gonna leave it. <laughs> bye, bye, boat." I will At go get another. Least he took your arm, but you paper. got away so you could get to chemistry. That is dedication. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's right. I mean, you have got two. One of them is kind of super. That's purple. why you or have two you know, ones. A backup. Do that's what. Yeah, the teacher is. will forgive you and your excuse your lateness, your tardiness.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're in chemistry talking about Stephen King's It, and what I thought would be really cool is let's talk about our first earliest childhood experience. Maybe with the book, maybe with the miniseries, movies, or you just heard about it somewhere. What's your earliest memory of it? And then we're gonna talk about kind of our adult experiences. So Ben, I wanna start with you. Do you remember your earliest memory of Stephen King's
1: It. I love that you're sharing with Kid and then going to adult. It feels very like on point with the with the story too. Exactly. Um, exactly. So mine is the exact same as yours. Is that I just remember seeing the cover of the novel. And the same mm. one you had where the paraffin boat's coming down and the green claws are coming out of the grate.
0: Yeah. And I can't
1: remember if I saw it on my parents' bookshelf or if I saw it like in a library bookshelf. I just remember seeing it on a bookshelf and just being so scared by the image but also the the greater fear of in the miasma of events of the unknown <laughs> of just I was like, I don't know what this book is about. And I'm scared enough not to dig deeper. I'm scared of the unknown of this book. Yeah. But since I don't have a larger, more colorful story, I will share one quick story that relates to the origins of my connection with it.
0: Please.
1: Is that for Christmas one year, I got the remote control car Ricochet. And Ricochet was oh. this awesome remote control car. Yeah, that could for a kid who was terrible at driving, you could flip it over and it keeps going. Yeah. Goes oh, yeah. both ways. They're so yeah. cool. Yeah. So imagine like a Christmas story, but instead of a Red Rider BB gun, I'm out in the snow with Ricochet driving it up and down the street. And I was a couple blocks from my parents' house playing with it. It's Christmas morning. Everyone's inside. There's no one outside. I'm all by myself in my PJs and jacket driving this up and down the street. And I drove it into a sewer. And it God. fell down into the sewer, and not like the manhole cover, but you know, like on the edge of the side of the road where yeah. there's like maybe yeah, like the a storm drain.
2: Opening. Storm oh, drain, thank like, you. Just
1: like in this story, just yeah. like, exactly. <laughs> so I ran up, and I was probably like in this story, I'm probably like eight or nine. I saw the car down there, and the storm drain is maybe maybe twelve feet deep by like ten feet across and four feet wide. But there's no big tunnels on either side. There's kind of like small drains in the bottom of it. And I was able to lift the sewer grate off and I climbed down into the sewer to get my Ricochet remote control car.
2: Oh my God.
1: And I grabbed it and I climbed back up out of the sewer and I'm dragging the metal grate back on and I'm about to set it down and it drops on my hand and I pinned my finger to the street. Oh, I can't get a grip with my pinned hand and I can't lift it with the other. So I'm pinned Christmas morning on the side of the street <sighs> over a sewer. Now, as a child, you know, you have like no concept of time. So like as a kid, I felt like I was out there for hours. Maybe it was like 10, 15 minutes, but I had to wait until a car came by and someone saw me waving and screaming and they stopped and came and helped lift the grate off my finger so I could oh go my home. Oh, God. And I have a huge scar on my middle finger where um, a pebble was drilled almost all the way to my bone being crushed.
2: You're very by lucky the grate. you still have your finger. I know. I oh, almost yeah. lost my arm. I'm like that little kid. It's crazy. I just, so you're, you, you
0: had a Georgie Dembro experience. Georgie, Thankfully, thank you. a that's much easier Georgie Dembro experience. But nevertheless, wow. So that's
1: my it, that's my origin It's connection.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> So I was thinking back to mine, and it's very clear. I was in third grade, uh, which would have been 1987. And I know this because after school, at that time, working single mother, after school was done, I had to go to this after, like a daycare kind of a place uh, until she could pick me up after work. And so one of the caretakers there, his name was Bill. And he, for some reason, again, we're kids, right? I'm in third grade. He's telling us about this book he read about this clown. And he said that he had a dream that we were all out in the yard playing and he looked across the street and there was a clown there. And the clown said, do you want a balloon, Bill? Do you want a balloon? And he opens his hand and balloons start firing out of his hand and he's aiming them at the kids. And Bill said he's trying to rescue all of us because the balloon would like consume us and disappear. They'd pop and we'd be gone.
2: Oh my God.
0: This clown in this dream is firing these balloons at the kids and... I was enraptured by this story. I drew pictures of a clown with clawed fingernails and fangs holding balloons saying, do you want a balloon, Bill? Which oh is my funny because the main character is Bill Denbro, right? Right. But that was my very first memory in third grade. I was like slightly terrified, but also so excited about this idea.
2: You guys have amazingly horrific and ama- like <laughs> eventful. It feels fitting
0: for it. Come on, it feels on point. Says a person who read this book way too early. I Tell was your story. Mine is much
2: quieter. As I said before, I read Misery around age 11 and what influenced that decision to pick that book was I had just seen the movie. The movie had just come out. So what was that, like 89, I think, 89, 90, something like that. I was babysitting, doing a lot of babysitting at the time. So I had a lot of money saved up and I just wanted to buy books and yeah. then i knew about stephen king because of the commercials for the stephen king library it was like this subscription that you could sign up for and it was commercials were on tv at the time and they would send you one of his books every month that was my really my first exposure to him although i had seen carrie i just didn't realize at the time that was him mm. oh sure i was able to go with my brother to the mall and be dalton booksellers and after finishing Misery, I then read The Shining, and then I read Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery is to me, as an aside, the most terrifying book he's ever written, bar none. Mm. But I always saw it on the shelf. And the title alone was scary to me, because you look at this massive book, and it has a two letter title. That's yeah. it. And that Was scary enough. And then you see the clown's face. And I remember that cover, Chris, I think by the time I bought that book, it was a slightly different version. Mm. And I remember specifically preparing myself, because I would see that book every time I go to the Stephen King section, and I'm like, I'm not ready yet. And then I read Pet Cemetery, And then I'm like, okay, this is as scared as I'm ever gonna get. And then I'm gonna go and read it now. And I picked it up off the shelf. And I read the first chapter. And it haunted me big time. Like how old were you? Do you remember your age specifically? I was about 12, 11 or 12. I don't recall the miniseries until much, a good bit later. I, did, I didn't come to it because I don't remember watching it. We'll mention that later. But I started to read into chapter two. And at that point, it switches to adult side, right? And it it lost, it didn't hold my interest. So, uh, because I didn't understand it, it was so different from that first chapter, because you're a child and you're reading this story about a kid getting murdered by a sewer clown. And you're like, whoa, hold on. And then it goes into this very adult oriented story. And that's when it kind of lost me as a kid. Mm-hmm. But I used to reread that first chapter over and over again. It was like a vignette. It was like, If I really wanted to get scared, I would read the first chapter of it. And so I would read it and read it and read it. But it was like into my teens when I finally read the entire book. And then I read it again later as an adult.
0: And if you don't know, like the first chapter, if I remember correctly, is Georgie, right?
2: Yes. It's
0: kind of a complete story. I mean, there's more to it. But it's like, yeah, being a kid and understanding that it's a normal thing you're doing that all of a sudden goes sideways. Like that's relatable.
2: And in between all the formats, both mini series, movie, and book, it's all the same, you know. So that's the great thing. The intro to this story is so iconic. They didn't have to change it. You have two young boys on a rainstorm, you know, one's sick and the other one wants to go play. You know what the miniseries actually starts differently. Oh, the mini really? oh my memory is messed up. F- I know.
0: I, I only rewatched it recently. The miniseries starts in the present day. I'm gonna use oh, air quotes here. Okay. Of the little girl being killed.
2: I totally oh, didn't remember yeah. that at all.
0: Mike Hanlon goes and he to the crime scene, and that's when he makes his phone calls, and then it goes back to Georgie. Oh, because I I had the same thought you did. I'm like, oh, it all starts in the same place.
2: Not exactly. As a kid, reading that, that sticks in your head because uh, it's one of the few instances of, oh my god, kids die in stories, and that didn't happen a lot. Well, and you even said that reminded you of when Ben talked about Unsolved Mysteries, where he's
0: like, sometimes kids get killed and aren't found.
2: That was reinforced much later by Unsolved Mysteries and certain shows was that, oh my God, so this really happens in the real world. And that was even more horrifying because it happens in a story and you go, oh, this isn't real. And then you see Unsolved Mysteries and kids are getting murdered in real life. (laughs) So it really is like a great awakening to the innocence of childhood going away.
0: And then going into adulthood, I just want to say, how have we all taken in, there's there's many formats, right? So how have we all taken in this series? So we just have a good sense of where we're talking from. So Allison, how many times did you read the book?
2: I've read it fully twice.
0: You did eventually watch the miniseries, right?
2: Yes. I watched the miniseries in the late 90s. And then I've, of course, seen the movies. I just watched part two of the movies last night. I hadn't watched yeah. part two. <laughs> I watched the first part when it first came out, I saw it in the theater. And then completely kept missing the second part. And so I finally watched it. (laughs) So very fresh in your mind. Yes. And Ben,
0: how have you taken in it?
1: Well, besides meeting Pennywise in the sewer to get my remote control car.
0: uh, (laughs) Obviously. When I
1: was a child. No, as an adult, I I admittedly, I have not read uh, the novel. Because I have not been able to yet acquire a sabbatical to like go ahead and- <laughs> You're going
2: to need one.
1: I don't think until this week I had even ever watched the miniseries in their entirety. Back in the day, I feel like the miniseries was something you would catch like on USA on the weekend yes. and you'd just like see parts of it. But I did I did consume both of the more recent films. So I've, I've, I've watched those.
0: And for me, I have not read the book, but I listened to it on audiobook. Narrated by Steven Weber. Uh, the name might sound familiar. He's of Wings fame. The TV show Wings is kind of what I always oh, remember yeah. him from. He's done a ton of stuff. You said, he, uh, Allison, he's narrated a lot of King's yes, books, he's right? He's
2: narrated The Outsider, uh, which is one of the more recent King books as well. Some short stories of King's, yeah.
0: And he does a fantastic job of it. Like, he's really good. But <laughs> folks, if you think 1,100 pages is a lot, this is 45 hours... Yeah, of audio. that's it's incredible. Long...
2: That's long. I don't know if Steven has a
0: voice any longer, but he better have been paid handsomely for that because it's a lot of talking. And then I very recently reacquainted myself with the miniseries and with both movies. And like I said, we're going to kind of talk about these interchangeably. We might shift back and forth, but again, it's kind of fitting for this topic that we might be all over the map.
2: Yeah, and we'll let you know too. If we're referencing the novel, I'll let you know and versus the the movies because um, there are some notable differences.
0: Yeah, and and some big themes in this book, and I mean, the entire story, there's childhood versus adulthood and how we contextualize things and understand them, as well as like fear and imagination and how those manifest differently in childhood than in adulthood. There's also this theme of innocence, of memory that we talked about that kind of goes along with imagination, belief. A lot of this ritual of chud that we'll talk about, which Mm -hmm. is how they fight and beat it, is about their belief. That belief yeah. creates the reality. Uh, and then of course, themes of evil, right?
2: I like how King almost made an, al- an allegory when the cycle was starting back up with Pennywise coming back awake. That's when the town would get particularly nasty.
1: And, yeah.
2: you know, that's when the hate crimes would start up. And that's when the violence, other violence and other horrible things would coincide with the reawakening of it. Yeah, you have – um
0: Adrian Mellon is the gay character that is killed at the – it's Canal Days Festival in the book. And it's, I guess, just a, a carnival. I don't know if they named it. It may have been on a sign and I missed it in the movie. Yeah. And it's – that is not – Shown in the miniseries that they show a little girl being killed in her front yard with like a clothesline and the wind is blowing. And as the blanket goes aside, you see a clown and it's Tim Curry and all
2: his glory. Very, very iconic shot from that miniseries. It is really that is. that sheet blowing back. But yeah, the Adrian Mellon incident is depicted very well in the movie and in, in such a way that it's almost hard to, it's very hard, it's to, hard watch, to watch actually. Yeah. But the book, that's when I came to it as an adult. And I finally had a lot more life context uh, and experience. It it really hit hard. So yeah, that's an interesting thing to show again, coming to something in childhood versus coming in as an adult uh, and and how that changes everything.
0: Cause Georgie's death kind of kicks off the childhood murders, let's just call them. Mm -hmm. And then the adult murders, it's this Adrian Mellon character. Now, What we haven't really said is that there's a a feeding and sleeping cycle that it has. And it's every 27 years. It tends to awaken. Usually it awakens to these events. They kind of coincide with some nasty events in the real world. Uh, And it feeds on victims, typically children, because children have simple fears they're pure fears. They're uncomplicated fears. Mm-hmm. And the fear is what it says salts the meat, which is a terrifying concept that our fear actually makes us more delicious. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and as an Chris, earth so, uh, you know, how do you feel about the cycle of hibernation, of, of <laughs> feeding and sleeping for a long period of time?
0: I mean, listen, we're
1: in fat bear
0: week right now, where <laughs> all of those bears are chonking up to go to sleep for the winter. I
2: feel like I've been in that mode all year. I don't know. wait, <laughs> <laughs> right. wait. Right. Right. (laughs)
0: bears is a great example it's like this analogy of a bear is going to feast up and then it's going to hibernate for at least the winter uh maybe not 27 years but man i could use a 27 year nap i'm not gonna lie amazing god yes (laughs) (laughs) ben i know you have a coherent linear kind of mind and sense of structure to the world I think Allison and I could start anywhere. Is there a place that you want to start or do you just want to start firing off your questions? I, I want to see what your thoughts are here.
1: Yeah, as someone who likes a, a very structured order of operations and things that I do, and so I, I get uncomfortable with like, let's all do these things all at the same time and we'll f- they'll, they'll all meet up at the end. I don't like it.
2: Can I just say, Ben, you and I are very similarly minded. I am a linear thinker. I'm a linear storyteller. I could never do what Stephen King did here with this book, which is part of the reason why I admire it so much. But also the fact that I was not lost and confused when I was reading this is why I'm like, even I got it. That's like the selling point. Like (laughs) even I could understand. So I want to tell anybody else out there that hasn't approached this monster of a book yet, that if you are a linear thinker, you're going to have your mind blown because you're going to get it. You're not going to understand how you get it. You're yeah. just going to get it. And you're that's the magic it. of it.
1: So I have lots of questions, but most of them I'm going to leave for contemporary culture because most of them are about the miniseries because that's what I just watched. Sure, but I have some questions that are like broader about the story. There's so much about like, you know, Georgie, everything floats down here. Do you guys have any insight into like, why is this a repeating theme of that everything floats down in Pennywise's sewer?
2: I feel like that appeals to the magical aspect that he's appealing to children with this sort of fantastical fantasy. I don't know, it almost sells like a promise. Like you come down here, we're all gonna float, we're all gonna like, because as you're, when you're a kid, like you dream about like flying, or you dream about defying gravity in some way. I think that's part of a childhood dream. So I think that Is why. And then you think about the balloon of this like symbol of like childhood innocence and fun. So I think that's really part of the clown's appeal to the child. It also sounds to me like
0: an interesting promise. That is a veiled threat. We'll all float. Sounds very magical. But if you think about it, it's also dreadfully and terrifying. When you're reading
2: this as an adult. And by the way, yeah. I should, as an aside too, this book was intended for adults. This story was intended for adults. So yeah. you're going to bring your adult mindset to that. And as a grown-up, you're automatically in a sense of dread and doom when you hear that or see that. You're like, oh God, bodies float. That is... The threat, but you're seeing it as like he's appealing to the child, and in your head, you're going, Oh, god, don't go, don't follow him, don't do that, uh, because you know what that really means. It and several of Stephen King's stories, in fact, that involve young kids as protagonists, these are adult stories it, that differs from the modern sensibility where when a story is told by children, uh, it's usually Aimed at children uh, like as a young, Y-A- a, a young or adult. Yeah. Middle grade. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is pre young adult storytelling. So I find that's another unique facet of this is that, like, this is very much for adults.
1: Okay. Because I kept trying to answer it with, like, very like practical answers. Like, oh, there's water in the sewer. The so things float in the sewer. So if you get down here, you're going to float. Or, like, in the miniseries, when we, when we meet the spider monster, it has sewn all of its victims up into the the chasm Mm -hmm. in the cave and they're sort of floating and in the modern iteration they all are floating i think it's all part of it i really do like bodies float right so part of it
0: is you'll float which might mean you're going to be dead like i think it all kind of intertwines and it's not meant to be fully understood so yes it's scary like you fill in the gaps you fill in the gaps it's very cryptic right
2: right if you were a kid being told that you were going to float Oh, that sounds kind of cool. Because like, as a small child, when I try to swim, I couldn't float. I wish I could. And I had to have water wings. And you know, but then I loved floating on the water. So if I were like a little kid being told this, again, though, if I were approached by a creepy clown in the sewer as a kid, <laughs> I probably would be terrified yes, stranger, and run away. Danger. But this is taking place what back in the 50s, you know, originally when they're kids.
1: Great transition to my other question. So I only have one other Oof. larger question about the overall story that's not like just about the miniseries. I'm assuming this happens in the novel too. But there's the scene in the in the miniseries where John Ritter's character, Ben Hansen. Hanscom. Hanscom, thank you. Not handsome, he is handsome. He's, he gets handsome later. He has a glow up But in the 50s, like he is haunted and tortured by these bullies who are calling him fat and like every synonym for overweight. And at mm-hmm. least in the TV series, I'm like okay, he's not a beanpole, but like, it blows my mind. They, they chase him down, they cut him with a knife in his stomach and tease him so much for being fat. Was this like a thing that happened? Like, was it worth bullying and cutting and torturing somebody for yes. being that size?
2: I was the fat kid in school. If I look at pictures of myself then, I actually wasn't. I actually yeah. wish I was that weight now. I would like kill to be the size now that I was then. But to kids, if you stuck out in any way- even if it meant you were maybe could lose about 10 pounds, you were the fat kid. And I, I think that was very true back then. And it Ugh. was true in the 80s. Absolutely. Uh, the kid that plays Ben in the movie is definitely like, you know, a rounder kid uh, in terms of body type. I think that's how he's portrayed in the book as well.
1: That sequence and just that theme that is in the book of, like, torturing Ben, like, Mm. certainly kids can be horrible to each other, and we certainly have not, like, bypassed an age of bullying, but, like, it just struck me as, like, a gang would chase and hunt down someone and literally cut (laughs) their stomach with a knife just because their stomach was a little bit bigger than their waist. That, like, blew my mind. But you also
0: have to remember that it is poisoning this town. Exactly. And in the books, it is very
1: clear that it
0: has seized on Henry Bowers and accentuated his violence. Yes.
1: Okay. So we've got a bit of a Ghostbusters 2 mood slime going on here where you come in contact with it and then it emphasizes your mood. You have to remember, like, the whole
0: reason when they leave, they forget is because they're kind of leaving the toxic. poison of this town yes that is a blanket over this town and that's why adults look away when kids are being tortured or in peril and that's why they don't seem to care that there's all of these missing children
2: that's a very good point chris that yes this is really the influence of it more than anything the bullies are mega bullies they are boss level bullies boss (laughs) level
1: bullies yeah
2: okay (laughs) Some of the things I want to
0: talk about are, what are things that we liked about this story? What are things that drew you in? What are things, and this is chemistry class, right? How do we associate with it? What are scenes or elements or themes or just something that made you think like, wow, this is haunting, terrifying, intriguing. I can't look away, stuff like that. One thing I do want to say is all of us talking about how ridiculous this tapestry of a book is, it does feel like this fully conceived world. Not only does it follow this group into timelines, but he has interludes through every section of the book that talk about dairy through history. So that's where we learn about the Ironworks disaster. That's where we learn about the Black Spot, which is this black club that's attacked by racists and like white supremacists, right? And again, these are all things that happen in real life, but they're kind of accentuated and ratcheted up because of the influence of it. I believe the Mike character learns from his father, I believe, throughout the book and starts learning from his family about all of these things that have been going on throughout Dairy's history, basically back to like the 1700s, I think is kind of how far back it goes. And I just appreciate that even though it's hard to follow sometimes, there's this very fully built world. Yeah, that's a good observation. Other things?
2: I personally love the way that the story deals with the childhood fear and trauma and the way mm. that kids process and both don't process. I think they're, kids are very good at hiding the horrors that happen to them as they're growing up because they don't want to tattle. Like, that's part of the culture, right? You don't involve adults whenever you're being... Traumatized. At least that was a the theme growing up. Don't tattle. So toxic, right? Mm-hmm. But it really delved into how we experience these weird and kind of horrifying things as kids. Maybe not on the level that these kids did, <laughs> but we have a way of processing it and suppressing it and moving on about life that doesn't really get talked about. The way kids just kind of deal with the horrible things that happen to them. And so I love that the story manages to do that in sort of this over the top way. And then it's almost like how we as adults then come back to face those things. Mm. The story just feels like a very big metaphor for how adults deal with the stuff that happens to them as kids. And it has value that way. And so that's what I always really appreciated that. I mean, I even appreciated it as a kid because I'm like, I could relate to Ben getting bullied for being fat. I could relate to, I could have been in the loser's club, like as a kid who didn't fit in. And that sense of belonging and that sense of unity, whenever you find your people, that is something I've really glommed onto when I read this mm. as a young person. And that sticks to this day.
0: Yeah. Ben, is there something in particular for you?
1: I would need an earth mover to get as deep as Allison just got, because (laughs) that's fantastic. Uh, But on a a much more servicey level, you see just the cover of the book, like you and I talked about. You're like, oh, there's a monster story. typical monster stories are like all right a monster's around for this one horrific night or like there's this monster around for this week and we must annihilate it yeah but like it is horrifying to realize that it is this like billion year old monster that comes every 30 some years or something to eat a bunch of kids that this is such a horror that lives way beyond our ability to get some horcruxes smashed or like (laughs) or like just snag some silver bullets and end this tonight is a terrifying realization and unique in monster stories.
2: Yeah, yeah. And the realization that as a kid, you think that you won, you think that you beat it, only to realize that it just went to sleep. That's horrible. Exactly. (laughs) So yeah,
1: I love love how broad the horror realization is. And your segue is perfect for the other thing I thought was really interesting, is yeah, it's like this two-phase story that I can't think of another example where you have the kids do it And then they leave, and then they come back 30 years later, and there's something about them coming back together with that purpose to save the world. Where, like, you know, we've got class reunions, you get back together, and you're like, see old friends, and you reminisce. And, like, the purpose of getting back together is just to, like, hey, how's it going? We're going to catch up, neat, reminisce, and we go away. But to bring all them together and to see what has not changed and what has changed and who they are today and their motivation levels to fight this evil. And then for them to have a purpose together to come back, I thought was really interesting. It was really fascinating.
0: And they come back not even really knowing what they're coming back to. They just know they made a promise. But Mike is the only one who never leaves and he's the only one who remembers. Mike is the caretaker of all this information. He's the one at the lighthouse keeping the signal. Yeah, And of course, he's the anchor that pulls everyone back in. But imagine you're coming back to a world that you know is terrifying, but you don't even remember why. That's a good observation.
2: And you know what's really funny? As a kid reading that story, I was like, how do you not remember, right? That was like something that I struggled with. Like, how do you forget this? But I'm sitting here now as a 41-year-old adult, and I remember my... I don't remember it, actually, but I do know, factually, that my most traumatic year in school was eighth grade.
1: Oh, isn't that, that when you met Chris? Like he, I he uh, was No, it was, that was the following year, but yes. Uh, okay, good. But
2: different trauma. But I remember nothing. I don't even know how I managed to pass because I remember skipping mm. school as often as possible and watching Terminator 2 – almost every day on a VHS tape. After my mom left for work, I pretended to go to school. I just didn't want to face the tormentors that I was dealing with. Long segue short, I do not remember the eighth grade. And I Mm. do not remember how I passed it. Or I don't remember what I learned. I don't remember my teachers. I only remember the few times I went that I was tormented on the way home from the bus. And so I get it now.
1: Allison, we've actually called you here. It's time to tell you. (laughs) There was a clown in a sewer, and you had a slingshot, and it's back. And
0: yeah, actually, you Allison, no, you're still back. down
1: there in the sewer.
0: You're oh, still down there. You know what?
2: <laughs> that's I even will t- worse. T- So basically, I've been taking the blue pill this whole time. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I mean, so I get that idea now. It's not necessary for me to remember the eighth grade, so why do I care? I think it's the same way with these kids. Like I know something probably went down that summer. I got my own life to live now.
0: Yeah, exactly. I do want to say, like, Ben, you mentioned the you'll float down here too. We'll all float, that kind of concept. And there's these refrains that keep coming back. And they're almost delivered like a nursery rhyme. There's you'll die if you try. Mm. Yeah.
2: Oh, I forgot about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and the Tim Curry Pennywise in the miniseries he's like, you'll die if you try to stop me. You'll die if you try. And there's just like a sing-songy. It's like a terrifying nursery, right? That's one, The Floating. The second movie introduced a new one, which was You Lied and I Died, but it still yeah. kind of has that that same sing-songiness to it and even just some funny things like beep beep Richie, right? Like oh, that's yeah. like a funny thing they keep saying, beep which beep is Richie. basically, let's keep Richie in check, because he's gone too far off the rails with his voices <laughs> yes. and All this stuff, and they're like, beep, beep, Richie. And that's like his, okay, I got to stop. Yeah. There's some fun things like that that they keep coming back to throughout the story that's almost like this little touchstone, a reminder of this whole big story when you get lost in the miasma, which is, we'll never call it anything else again. exactly. (laughs) Another thing I did want to mention that I thought was really cool, we talked about like belief and childhood and innocence. I, I read this really cool thing, which is saying like, without belief, there's no such thing as fear Without fear as a weapon, it is powerless. And really, I want to talk a little bit about the ritual of Chud, not mentioned at all in the miniseries. No. Brought up in part two of the movie and talked a little bit about in the book, but it's this ritual that they learn of by different means, depending on the property. But basically it's there in every incarnation, which is the bond of their friendship, the bond of how close they are. It's a battle of wills with it each time. And that imagination and childhood is what does it. And it's a sense of belief. In the books, the ritual of Chud is you basically have to catch their tongue. Is that right, Allison? You have to like catch their tongue and then uh, make jokes until the loser laughs.
2: Yes, 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 yes. Oh my God. I'd forgotten about that part. It's so bizarre to
0: say it out loud. Like to say the words. And then in the second movie... When they do their walking tour, which does happen in the book too, to re-familiarize themselves with the town. In the movies, they all have to get a, an artifact or a totem of their childhood, and then they're going to bring it back and burn it in this cauldron kind of a thing. And that will be their ritual to, again, band together and fight. Fascinating, but so bizarre. Yeah. Maybe only cocaine can get you there, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But it's one of those things in the book where you're like, okay, ritual of Where did it come from? Okay, great. That's awesome.
2: That ritual is something else. I really like how the movie whittled it down because I think there was really no other way to do it in a way that would like make it happen in the span of one
0: movie. Well, especially when you make the first movie, not even knowing you get to make the sequel that could have been made and was a flop. And then they'd have no money or impetus to make the second movie. Yeah. There's another cool thing that is mentioned in the book. And uh, comes up in the second movie a lot. All things must abide by the rules of the shape they inhabit. This is a really interesting concept and how, to Ben's point, you have this billions years old cosmic horror. How do seven children in a sewer stop this? How do six adults in a sewer stop this? And that's because it is on earth manifesting itself and it has to abide by the shape it's in. And they mention this a little bit in the book, but I think more so in the second movie Mm -hmm. is they make it small and it's vulnerable in that shape. And it acknowledges it to itself in the book. Uh, that that's how it almost died is that you know when it's in these corporeal forms shall we say that is its weakness right. and they learn that in the movies and they basically shame it and like yell at it and dismiss it to make it small and that's how they're able to defeat it in the movies yeah kind of an interesting idea again this whole concept of belief like that's another thing ben you're like you need silver bullets to get the werewolf right you need a cross with garlic to get the dracula you know and then this one, you have to believe something. Like, this is not a, an aspirator. It
1: shoots
2: acid. Right.
1: And I'm going to burn you with this acid. Yeah, as someone who's used a lot of asthmatic inhalers over my year, you can't really, like, just plug battery acid into an aerosolizer like that. Like, I don't really know when he's like, this is battery acid. I was like, how it's would you, belief. How would it's you belief. do that? But it's just his belief. It's all in his it's, it's all in It's his belief mind. is
0: what does it. Like, it, he, if he believed it, it was real, and it yeah. injures it.
2: That kind of calls to the fairy tale aspect of yeah. the yeah. story. Is this all
1: nested in the matrix? Where if you just start to believe something, <laughs> it's real.
2: There is no spoon. Okay, there's no there's spoon. No
1: spoon. <laughs> there's no spoon.
2: And I do feel like that creates in itself the conflict for the adults to face this down because as kids. You're more willing to believe you're more accessible that way with the fantastical as adults, you don't have that. So it becomes very much like as adults, we have to learn how to believe again. Uh, We're jaded by our own life experiences and, you know, whatnot. Uh, So I just try to imagine like if I had to do something like that as the person that I am today, oh my God, uh, I would be dead. Or I would pull a Stanley Uris, not to get too dark. But honestly, if somebody gave me that phone call, it was like, oh, we need to go fight the sewer clown again that we beat. As a kid, you probably don't remember it, and I was oh, like, yeah, let
1: me get on Google Flights, yeah, see where my next way out I is." I think this no. is most thoroughly covered in the very
2: serious documentary
1: from the '90s, Hook, where Peter Pan <laughs> yes. must be recruited back to Neverland That's as an adult and believe very in himself
2: again. Good point. Uh, if that is honestly <laughs> that would make an interesting double feature. Watch the It movies, <laughs> whatever form, and watch Hook, because seriously, it makes you remember. Though, as an adult, like we really need to maintain some aspect of belief. Yeah? Yeah, I think I've just
1: disproven my thing Rose. I was like it's amazing because like it's a kid story and then you got to come back as an adult to fix the thing you thought you'd fix. I was like, "Oh crap." But man, look, ben. look yeah. he is. Like, is, this, is a parallel there?
2: Interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a Into good it. catch, Ben. Into Very it. Good.
1: Fascinating. <laughs> now, we talked
0: about the Battle of Chud. We're, we're, we're skirting the edge of the macroverse. Ben, you have turtle questions. Let's just get him out right now. What do you need to know about this giant flying turtle?
1: Well, I guess I can get it out a little bit. As I've just always heard that one of the things that would be next to impossible it's sort of like where people were like it would be almost impossible take to make dune the film adaptation because dune the novel's so incredible that you couldn't do it on a screen agreed and i've heard that about it as it relates to like the turtle slash spider and now i've seen it executed twice on the screen and i'm just wondering for the two of you who have read the novel how's the execution of that or what is the space turtle slash spider
0: The whole idea is that it has this enemy, that's the turtle. The turtle's name is Maturin. I don't believe it's, I don't know if the name is mentioned in the books. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. It's only referred to as the turtle. It's a giant turtle. This turtle vomited our galaxy into existence. That's how big this thing is. It's this benevolent creature. And during the first Ritual of Chud, if you think about there's sort of a metaphysical fight and there's an actual physical fight. In the metaphysical realm that Bill goes to, he kind of meets the turtle. I would say the turtle provides him advice. It provides him reassurance that they know how to beat It. Because they're kind of, I wouldn't say mortal enemies, they're immortal enemies. It and the turtle. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so Bill kind of gets this guidance slash reassurance from Maturin. And that's how in the first one they're able to defeat, but not fully, It. And then you learn very quickly, because again, these stories intertwine, that in the future, the turtle's dead. (gasps) Uh, Because Bill goes back into the metaphysical space, and Richie gets pulled in, too. And they're kind of flying by, and they see this huge turtle carcass. And Pennywise is kind of taunting them, and he says, the turtle's a fool, he's an idiot, he's dead. He was in his shell and choked, he vomited, and choked on his own vomit.
1: Oh, my God. But
0: Bill senses the other which might be the creator of everything. Gone. Gone, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which again, name not mentioned, just the other in this, but this all ties back to the Macroverse and the Dark Tower series, that there's this other that is aiding their fight the second time around, and that this creator basically praises Bill after they beat it for, again, I'm going to say for realsies with giant air quotes, because there's two clues that, Maybe they didn't fully win, which I want to. Maybe we'll end chemistry with. But um Allison, did I miss anything? I mean, okay, once again, I missed everything. But no, did I, no, is there any you, critical things I missed? You covered because, it perfectly oh. for
2: the for the story of it. Uh So the turtle, which this is uh, popular ish mythology in a, in some other cultures. This right, idea exactly. of a, a turtle supporting the universe, you know, on a shell.
1: Hindu, Chinese, even indigenous in America have this sort of cosmic turtle carrying the yes. world on its back. Even Avatar The Last Airbender oh, has right. a I mean, turtles.
2: Which is, <laughs> which is gospel. Exactly. And so the Dark Tower is sort of the nexus that holds the universe together. And it's a series of levels. Like it's like the, the hub of a wheel, right? And it goes very high up, like infinitely high. And there's all these, they call them beams in the story. It's almost like the spokes of that wheel, and there are six of them. It's been yeah, a few I think years. that's right. Six or eight. I think it's, yeah. But each beam has its own guardian. There's a bear. There's several there. But the turtle is a guardian of a beam of the tower.
0: I just looked this up. There are six beams, two guardians on each beam. Yes,
2: on each end, right? Because you have the tower in the middle. And then, okay, so there's 12 guardians then? That's right. Yeah, so Maturin is one. So we can then assume... That on this level of the tower, that beam is broken, essentially, when he dies. So that in itself is an indicator. Maybe they didn't fully win. Because uh, if you really get into the King metaverse, I compare it to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If you are in the know with every story and aspect, then maybe you have different knowledge than a casual viewer.
0: Mm. Ooh.
2: Lots of indications there, right? That the the death of Maturin had drastic effects. I will now now.
1: I just got bingo on my end for things I didn't think we were going to get into this episode, <laughs> which was the Marvel multiverse on, oh, on Stephen King's. It it's very much like that,
2: and there are flowcharts. Yeah. There are massive things you could really get into with the Stephen King macroverse. So just like rereading a chapter in a book, listeners, if you'd like to rewind
1: roughly two and a half minutes and just play this part a couple times, because <laughs> this is getting on some it's, levels it's here. It's fascinating yeah. stuff. Yeah.
2: But let's say you don't want to get into that whole macroverse. You could absolutely look at it from a Hindu or Chinese perspective that he was taking from to represent sort of that essence of the universe, that underpinning yeah. of the universe, but yeah. then mm-hmm. just broaden it. From there, if you want to know more, King went well beyond that story to explain more.
0: It's amazing. And I think it's fair to say that to your point, Ben, this is something that couldn't be tackled in a two-part movie. No. Uh this really needs to be probably a mini-series, like a short season where they could do it justice if they really wanted to bring this aspect of the it story to the screen. Seriously,
2: an eight to ten episode series would probably cover yep. most of it. And that's why
0: you see a lot of these novels, these bigger novels or stories being adapted into miniseries, Mm -hmm. because it's a lot to kind of translate visually. Yeah. We've covered a lot of bases. Is there anything else in chemistry that we, I mean, again, we could talk for probably five more hours about this book. We barely scratched the surface of some of the plot, but there's just so much. Is there anything else we really want to mention in this
1: class? No, I think we're good. But here's what concerns me: If we say we're good, Allison, and we're like, "Yeah, we're fine," <laughs> we're gonna get a call in 30 years to be like, "You've got to come back to the
2: podcast. We missed something." Yeah. Oh, we no, missed we no. missed a whole subplot, guys. I got to come back and do another podcast. I do want to end this
0: class with a quote from the book. It's from Mike Hanlon. This is in Dairy, the last interlude. Remember, I said there's like these little interstitial stories that come in between. The last one is. Mike writing his final journal entry, his memories are fading, and he's reflecting on the despair of forgetting his friends. Because in the movie, once they kill it, like the cloud on their memories kind of dissipates. But in the story, they actually, their memories act, they start to forget, which is again, kind of a terrifying thing because this bond of friendship is what got them through this all. And they're already starting to forget each other. And all of that stuff is once again, fading away. And he said, I loved you guys. You know, I loved you so much. And I just thought like, "Mm." we talked about Harry Potter before. Love was what saved Harry, right? Like, and it's kind of the same thing here. What saves these friends is their deep bond to each other. And I just thought that was really poetic. I like that. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
2: And it speaks to, we don't always remember the people that were there for us at the most important Mm. times of our lives when it was going down. Those people move on. We move on. They were there for a reason or a very brief moment. What's that quote? You won't remember
0: what someone says to you, but you'll remember how they made you feel. There's like a quote. Mm -hmm. That's such a good one. And I, I think it's
2: very true to the human experience. Well, guys, there's only one thing I
0: love more than any of this discussion. Or you two. I want lunch.
2: Lunch. (laughs) Lunch. (laughs) I'm angry. (laughs) I'm
0: glad you guys are on the same wavelength. Lunch. I hope that child's fears are not on the menu today because I don't want to eat children's fears. No. Uh, Something else. Something a little more appetizing. Time for food. (laughs) All right. Yes, exactly.
2: Silly, starring Ronald McDonald and the Chicken McNuggets. Ronald, nice to see you in this mess of the woods. Come on. What are you making? We're staring up secret sauces <laughs> for dipping. We're ready, good Let's make sauce. <laughs> oh, well, at least I got my hair done.
1: I have an idea. Whoop de doo! McDonald's <laughs> sauces. You can always count on them to be terrific. It's a good time for
2: the great taste of McDonald's.
1: I loved my haunted fortune cookie. That was a great time. When the lunch lady gave me the little miniature clown cake,
0: like the little, I, I didn't want to eat it. I didn't want to cut into
2: that. I didn't know what was going to come You don't know up. what, yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> How do you want to do this? How do you want to get into Contempo culture on this? Well, let's talk about,
0: first off, the miniseries that came out. Let's just talk a little bit about it. So in 1990, ABC decides they want a broadcast of all things it on television mm. and if you've seen it you know it has some notable actors in it there's tim curry who plays pennywise harry anderson you might know from night court if you're an 80s kid right. john ritter from three's company we mentioned So many
2: of them have died oh god i know I it's actually, very sad when i think of john uh, Ritter, i always
1: think of him as the dad and problem child is what i oh, think of yeah, john ritter, yeah. john ritter.
0: Uh, Richard Mazer, who's been in a lot of stuff. I remember him from, uh, he was the uncle in My Girl.
2: Oh, yeah. With Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Bee uh, like, oh,
0: Yes. Trauma. Trauma.
1: Seth Green is in Seth this. Seth Green, says, I love a that. Kid. I didn't really, when I saw that, I didn't know that. The I love that. Diet Coke of evil. <laughs> You're right, right. Robot Chicken, Austin Powers. Like, I was oh so
2: excited. <sighs>
0: Jonathan Brandis. I favorite. totally forgot about him. I was like, Another Jonathan Another R.I.P.
2: My goodness. Ugh. Another R.I.P., sadly. Like, one of your
1: favorite movies that we've talked about on the podcast? What was Brandis in? The NeverEnding Story 2.
2: Yeah, The NeverEnding oh, Story 2. Story was was
0: 2. And Tim Reed, Uh, Tim Reed went on to, he plays the father in uh, Sister, Sister. Oh, yeah. Notable people, speaking of notable, George A. Romero was supposed to direct this miniseries. This is the creator of the Night of the Living Dead series. Uh, A big
2: Stephen King influence as well.
0: Yes. Unfortunately, he backed out because of scheduling issues and they kept reducing the length of the series. And he's finally like, no, because the initial run was going to be eight to 10 hours. Should have been. It needed to be. Which is easily twice as what we got, right? right? And then they shortened it to a three-parter, and then it finally became a two-parter, roughly four hours. That's sad. Again, if they had that eight to ten hour, they probably could have done some of these other aspects. But then again, it's 1990 on television. Right. Mainstream television. Yeah. Not Showtime, not HBO. So who knows what they would have gotten away with. Uh, it ends up being directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. At the time, networks were looking to make dramas. Dramas were actually really popular then. And- They were wanting to make something quirky and different. This is in the era when Twin Peaks was becoming popular, Tales from the Crypt. But people were being a little more adventurous with television. Right. And it did push TV boundaries at that time for the amount of blood shown and also for themes of child endangerment. Like, that wasn't really a thing you did.
2: And I think that predated Stand By Me, if I'm correct. Mm, That's a great... I think it did. That's another one where it's like kids... 1986 is when Stand By Me came oh, out.
1: Oh, wow. It's older than I thought. Okay. Stand By Me. I'm so glad you brought it up. It's like really big where like his older brother is deceased, right? And then yeah. his room, the older brother's room is frozen in time and it's yeah. like a sacred space. And that exists too here. Georgie's room is like preserved. Yeah. And I tried to like look up and I was like, did Stephen King lose a brother when I, when like, do you have any insight? Is like, why is this a theme in Stephen King's stories or in other stories? Like
2: the lost sibling
1: that you can't go in their room.
2: He watched one of his best friends as a kid get hit by a train. I believe that was, uh, yeah. So that was a big part of the theme. And of course what happened with stand by me, right? And also, he grew up in a single-parent home. His dad was one of those, I'm going to go for some cigarettes, and never came back.
1: Oh, God. And
2: so, abandonment and things like that. He was very close to his mother until she died in his, like, 20s, I think it was. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, traumatic themes there. But they do believe that, yeah, him watching his best friend die getting hit by a train was a big inspiration.
0: Well, and I love that you mentioned Stand By Me because there's so many parallels between these two books. right? You have this band of great friends. You have this bully gang that's like the rival that's after them. You have this sense of like losing your innocence and coming into like teenage and adulthood life.
2: And there's a quote from that uh, story that really applies to it where he's like, you never have friends like you had when you were 12. Yeah. And that really carries over. And I think that's a very important theme. And a lot of his Agreed. work, honestly. Right. I do have a
1: question about this parallel, especially if you, Allison, as our professional author here. Because, like, so when you, when you write a story of any kind of story and you have your protagonist, that protagonist could have any professional background. So you oftentimes have soldiers or firefighters or cops who are, like, heroes in movies. But you could also be an architect. You yeah. could be a graphic designer. You could be a seamstress. Whatever is, like, your jam. And I found in both It and in Stand By Me, it is the adult who grows up to be an author. Yes. Who is the the hero in both and the keeper of the stories, like the giver.
2: It's not the only story he does that either. I mean, a lot of them. I'm terrible.
1: I haven't read your novels yet, but is is an author the hero of every one of the books you've
2: written? God, no. I couldn't get away (laughs) with that. Uh, In fact, that is something that is very much frowned upon and discouraged. Like, do not make your main character an author. Stephen King is pretty much the only writer who could get away with that nowadays.
1: Okay, as Chris has brought up several times, in a lot of the movies we've covered, I've never seen a movie where marketers are the heroes; they're always the villains. <laughs> and so, like when I see authors as heroes, written by authors, I'm like,
2: Come well, on. the interesting thing is, you know, so many of the authors in his stories are really messed up, right? I mean, you look at The Shining; he's a writer. Yeah. Misery; oh, right. he's kind of messed up too. Right. Mm-hmm. Stand by me. He kind of was well balanced, but some messed up stuff happened to him. The dark half is probably the most messed up of them. And that a writer whose pseudonym became a real person and started murdering people and framing him for it. So, yeah, King has battled a lot with his persona as an author. and, And they're usually very haunted, messed up people. I would say that's true.
0: And the last thing of the parallels I just want to mention is also you have an instance where a brother dies, one older, one younger, in each of those stories, and the parents are resentful of the living yeah. child. Yeah. As a kid, that's a very, like, ugly, dark place to be in.
1: Well, what's fascinating is like um, there's a, there's a very real psychological phenomenon of survivor's guilt, where right. like if you are someone to make it through something, and people that you feel guilty for not having passed also, but to like to Chris's point, like having adults guilt you for that is it's like a shocking premise. It's shocking
2: it. and so sad and very real, unfortunately. Yeah. Like oh, it's it's terrible. So back to the miniseries, just
0: a couple things. Please. It was a huge success for ABC. It garnered over 30 million viewers total, between the two parts. Pretty good. It was praised for the child actors and the development of the Losers Club. The kids part was great. Widely criticized for the adult actors. They felt that a lot of the adults were unlikable. Not necessarily the actors, but the way the characters grew up and how they were portrayed. Also, it was really badly panned for the spider at the end.
2: Oh, big time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the funny thing is, is that's the real ending, as we know, or maybe don't know. Like, they fight him as a spider, like or her, I should say. It is female. That's right. It's female? It is female. So they don't actually get into it in either of the visual adaptations. It is female. It is pregnant. And it drops a bunch of eggs at the end. Yeah. And what Ben Hanscom's job is in the current times in the book is he has to stamp out all these eggs by burning match light and then smash the little spider creatures that are coming out of it. And at the end of the book, he says, I think I got them all. I'm so glad this is following Alien because this is yes. perfect. Like Sigourney
1: Weaver, flamethrower, let's do it. Yeah. So he thinks
0: he's crushed it all. And at the, the very first line of the book is, when we beat the monster, so we thought. It's something like that. So he's given two indications that maybe they didn't defeat it. Or if it's dead, maybe one of those eggs survived and is
2: still that out there nesting. a classic. Uh, <gasps> you have to have that trope in horror. Little bit of unsettling at the end that it's not really out of doubt, right? Yep, yeah. Always.
1: Now I'm gonna have probably an unpopular opinion. Go for but it. But I kind of found the spider puppet charming. <laughs> and, and, and hear me out. You know, we, we are in an age where if there's anything that is fantastical, it's CG. And I miss the artistry and the craft and the work that went into creating puppets and sets. So, like, yes, the spider does not look great. But it reminded me of, like, a little bit of, like, Clash of the Titans or, like, even the monster at the end of, like, Howard the Duck. It's like yeah, Howard like the
2: st- Duck! Oh, my <laughs> God! <laughs> this, like, stop-motion
1: ridiculousness, but still, like, the idea that somebody crafted this with their hands and then filmed it. I appreciated that.
0: I'm going to posit something, Ben. Yeah. This is why I think people didn't like it. Sure, it looked a little cheap. Sure, it looked a little unmenacing. Tim Curry was so good as Pennywise. Yeah. In this last incarnation, you don't get that same menace because you don't get the terrifying taunting, that look on his face when he opens his mouth and he's got fangs. You don't get that with the spider. Yeah. And I think they made an interesting choice in the movies to make Pennywise head on a spider. Yeah. And I think that gave it a little more of that sense because, again, Bill Skarsgård as that Pennywise does a great job of being a menacing looking person and creature. And he the thing you can thing do with, with his, his eyes. eyes. Yes. Yeah. That's real. That's not a special right. effect. It's he terrifying. really did that. And I think maybe that's why it didn't feel as menacing because you didn't have Tim Curry at the center of that puppet spider.
2: Right. I love the compromise between the spider and the clown that we got. I feel like the movie made some great compromises between... The old school and the new school and made it into something that contemporary audiences would appreciate and understand.
1: Well, our discussion of these differences of spiders, you both have introduced one of my main questions I wanted to ask in chemistry. Oh,
2: ask away. Which
1: is to introduce the great 2021 debate, the Skarsgård versus Curry debate.
2: Ooh, Oh, look at you throwing it down. Coming it uh. down.
1: Do you have hot <laughs> takes, opinions? How do you feel about the two different portrayals of Pennywise?
0: This is like comparing Jack Nicholson's Joker to Heath Ledger's Joker. So true. It is so similar. You have the comical, whimsical almost. Yeah. Still devilish but delightful versions that Jack Nicholson did of the Joker and that Tim Curry did with Pennywise. Pennywise is colorful in that one. He's got yellow and blue and orange. The... Portrayal by Bill Skarsgård is also a very dark, disturbing figure, much like Heath Ledger's Joker. And I don't want to choose between Jack Nicholson's Joker and Heath Ledger's Joker. I like them both for different reasons. And that's how I feel about these Pennywises. Mm. The
2: Pennywise in the modern film would not work in the miniseries and vice versa. They were both created with the tone in mind of what they were trying Mm. to accomplish. I don't think you could interchange those clowns and so therefore, it's hard to choose. I will say, as someone who tends to trend to the darker side of things, that I do feel like the scars Guard Pennywise is generally more horrific. He's more on the nose uh, of what you would expect of a terrifying clown. The Curry clown is very subversive. And I trend also toward the subversive. So I love the idea of this cosmic horror disguised as a birthday party clown but i feel like at the end of the day charisma wins out and i have to go with curry Oh, she threw it down.
0: Curry charisma, curry charisma.
2: I love all the scars guards and I admire and love the aesthetic of that clown, but he doesn't scare me because his appearance tells me I'm supposed to be scared. Mm. But Curry's clown, you just look like a birthday clown and then you open your mouth and all these fangs come out. (laughs) (laughs) So at the end of the day, I will say the curry edges it out, but I respect them both for what they accomplish. Ben, do you have a hot take on this one? I absolutely do. Yay! Okay. I think we're all actually pretty much aligned.
1: We're like, and especially as you're speaking to a super lover of Batman, I respect the Joker analogy. very. Like, I love them both for different reasons. And I think Allison was describing it very well. We're like, Skarsgård's Pennywise scares me way much more. I am Mm -hmm. horrified. Mm. By his portrayal, and not only like what they were able to pull off with modern special effects, like there's the scene where they go in the flooded basement and he suddenly runs through the water yes! inhumanly fast. Oh, they do That's great such a things. good thing. The
0: fast motion, like slow movement out of the and water, and his acting,
1: Ugh. like guards, like facial expressions, and he does this sort of like pouting thing where like he's sad if you won't play with him, sort yeah. of thing. Like he is a very menacing, scares me a lot. So his performance crushes. But Curry, subversive is the right word there's two things about Curry's portrayal where like he is so like welcoming and warm a little bit that he would bring a kid in and then you see the horror. And the reason, the part that I love Curry is is he loves what he does. He's like Freddy Krueger. He loves his work. Like he's having a good time Like, when they're in the library, and he's torturing him, he's just laughing with the horn, like, ha-ha, ha-ha,
2: ha-ha.
1: Like, he just loves, he loves what he does. And so, both performances, great for different reasons. Completely
2: agree.
0: Okay, I also want to talk about the movies that came out in 2017 and 2019. We've been talking about those with Bill Skarsgård, portrayal. uh, Very different take, as we've just mentioned, on Pennywise. And... What's really interesting about this one is the miniseries kind of follows the back and forth of adult children. It follows that narrative a little closer, Then the movie, because they made the movie not knowing they could make a second one. It was like, let's make this thing. And if it doesn't stick, it doesn't make money. We can't make the sequel. We can't do the adult version. Mm, Right. So they had to make a movie that was self-contained. So you don't start in the future and then kind of work back and forth, back and forth. It's all kids. Yeah. And notable actors in chapter one are few and far between. It's Bill Skarsgård and I think Finn Wolfhard are really the... Two known people, that's pretty much it with a bunch of unknowns, fantastic job by them. But none of those other kids or even some of the adults I think really had much of a noteworthy career before that at least not that you'd instantly recognize them. So chapter one, does it do well? I don't know, it grosses. Over seven hundred million dollars world. Very
2: well for a horror movie. Wow! <laughs>
0: Against a budget of thirty-five million. Yeah. Huge. Which is incredible. Seven hundred million. So yeah, it was a success. I think unadjusted for inflation, it was the highest-grossing horror film of all time. Yeah. Wow. Holy crap. Yeah. That's huge. So clearly, they green light chapter two. Okay, let's do it. Chapter two adds some very notable people. You have Jessica Chastain, who plays adult Beverly. You have James McAvoy, who plays adult Bill. And Bill Hader. Bill Hader! Who, adult Richie. Beep, beep, Richie. I love Bill Hader.
2: Because the got to play Ben. Ugh he's a new zealand soap opera actor but you know that's cool ben hunkson yes (laughs) like john ritter
0: doesn't have the beefcake quality that this dude has when he comes in you're like ben (laughs) (laughs) b-buff
2: very much i loved in the chinese restaurant scene where richie was like can we talk about ben he got hot (laughs) (laughs) that's great
0: haters so good at these haters so good Um. So this movie grossed 473 million worldwide. It didn't do nearly as well, right. As chapter but one, but yeah. it's, it's
2: a sequel. It's a little to see what happens,
0: right? Yeah, it happens, but still, you know, I think we can all agree, pretty big success. I do not think I didn't look up the budget, but I can guarantee you, it was not close to 473 million. Right? It made some cash. So these movies come out, and what I would say is, where the miniseries to me. I can't say that one is more faithful than the other. There's so much stuff the miniseries does that the movies don't and vice versa. I kept going back and forth and where I landed is, if you talk about the beats, for the most part, the miniseries hits a lot of the beats in somewhat the same order-ish as the book. The movie feels like a spiritual successor, a spiritual modern version of that story. Mm So they're faithful, but in different ways, but I can't come out and say one was closer than the other. And when the day is done, they don't need to be because these are movies, they are television miniseries, they are not books. Those are consumed and portrayed in very different ways. Right. So what's really great about these movies, they have the amazing amount of Easter eggs. Yes. In chapter one, when they're in the kneebolt house and they're going to go defeat it, There's a clown room. Richie ends up in a clown room. Oh, terrifying. Surrounded by all these clowns. One of the clowns looks like Tim Curry's Pennywise.
2: I didn't notice that. How did I miss that? Yes,
0: it's a quick shot. It's a quick shot. But you see a little homage in the corner. So great. Love it. If the kids are ever wearing a printed t-shirt, assume that's a reference to something. Often it's a reference to a company or something that he mentions in the book that doesn't really... Makes sense to mention, like, uh, I think one is called Freezes. And I think Richie's character, if I remember correctly, is wearing a Freezes shirt at one point. Oh. So there's a lot of those oh. all sprinkled in, including Ben's galaxy shirt, the black shirt with the galaxy on it. Base turtle. Little, little nod to the macroverse. Oh, cool. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, speaking of turtles, there are a lot of turtle references. So you talked about the paraffin wax. In this movie, he goes downstairs to get turtle wax. I remember that. <gasps> that's awesome. There's a Lego turtle that's being built. In the second chapter, there's a turtle model in the classroom. I think it's a scene where Beverly, air quotes, comes to talk to Ben and you find out it's really Pennywise. So that's great. In chapter two, when they're doing the ritual of Chud, Mike is talking to Bill about it. And he describes the root that the the Native Americans use. It's Maturin root. Oh, I did I completely is, missed
2: that too. And I just watched it last night.
0: <laughs> Allison, I only got it because of subtitles. Without the subtitles, I would have missed it. That's great. The way he says it so fast. Yeah. When it has them all kind of separated in the second chapter and he's, they're all facing their worst fears and all the bullies are attacking Beverly. The bathroom stall door opens once and here's Johnny, yes, which is I remember that. good.
2: You go, you have to have that in a Stephen King homage, right?
0: One of my absolute favorite, two of my absolute favorites. The actress who plays Eddie's mom plays his wife, Myra, in the second one.
2: It's the same woman. (laughs) That's the thing. I mean, the movie obviously highlighted that just enough to make it clear. The book goes into more detail to show that Eddie married his mother, very yeah, much so. His right, mother, right. That's and this like
0: literally pulls it in.
2: I mean, that makes sense too. Like you could very much tell she was wearing like a fat suit, and she looked very yeah. made up as his mother. So yeah. you wouldn't have probably noticed that otherwise. That's awesome. It's so good. The
0: second one is when we are introduced to the adult versions. You see this kind of sort of pudgy guy. In this boardroom talking, and you think it's ben, ben. I
2: love that moment.
0: Did you guys know that guy that's standing at the table was the actor who played the child Ben in the 1990 miniseries? No. Cool. That is Brandon Crane. They got him back. So great reference. That's That great. is
2: fascinating. Isn't that so cool? Love it.
0: Well, as much as I love those two, the very best for last, it's not a Stephen King property unless the man himself makes a cameo appearance. Yes. And who shows up but the pawn shop owner in part two who sells back silver, the bicycle, the the dilapidated bicycle to Bill. And there's a meta joke in there, Allison, you (laughs) wanted to talk about. The
2: the joke of all time uh, for anybody who is a fan of Stephen King is that he tends to blow his endings. I think he sticks the landing most of the time, but other times he can be a little less than satisfactory. Uh, And so love that they made a point that nobody likes his endings, Bill Dimbro's endings when he's adapting it. And so then Stephen King leans into that uh when he's interacting, like, no, I didn't like the ending, you know? And so it's, yeah. I love that Stephen King leaned into sort of the popular culture aspect of Stephen King stories is that he has amazing stories, but he doesn't always nail the endings.
0: It's so good, and him having the like being the caretaker, if you will, of this old bicycle. Yeah, it's almost like he's handing back Bill's innocence and childhood. Great point. Imagination to him. It's just, it's just a cool little scene. It's not overstated, but if you know Stephen King, you know it's him. Like he has a very distinct, look unique look. And,
2: oh yeah, I mean nobody can ever look or sound like Stephen King. You just know it's him. Well, there's one other massive
1: Easter egg you may not yes. have mentioned. One might recall that the it is largely rumored that the concept of Easter eggs was invented in the 1975 musical Rocky Horror Picture Show, which oh, was being filmed really? around the time of Easter, and the cast, as a joke, hid Easter Easter eggs on set, plastic Easter eggs, and some what? did not get cleaned up in time for filming, and so if you watch Rocky Horror Picture Show, you actually might see a couple plastic Easter eggs, which is where the whole thing came from, starring Tim Curry, Tim Curry
2: as Tim Frank and My mind oh, is going to my. explode. I'm so glad this is a podcast and not a video series, otherwise you would be grossed out. It's just oh my all God. over the screen right yeah, now. Yeah, it like and it's amazing. like scanners, you know. <laughs> Uh, another 80s reference. Yes,
0: excellent uh, reference. Allison, you've again read 99% of his works. It, the entity, and dairy kind of show up in a couple other properties. Yes. Uh what what are some of the the big tent pole properties where you're gonna get those references?
2: Okay. If you want to go the most recent route, read Stephen King's book 112263, which details Uh, A main character's attempt to go back in time to prevent the Kennedy assassination. It is probably one of the best books King has ever written, by far. Mm. It is in my top five.
1: The Hulu miniseries of it was really good. Yeah. uh, Starring, uh, so shockingly, James Franco, of all things. But he crushes it.
2: I still have to watch that. I haven't watched it. I've read the book a couple times. When he goes back in time to 1963, he goes to Derry and actually meets the kids in 1963 and i think it is like just after they defeated the clown or
0: it's uh five years later
2: yeah yeah, yeah. and That's so cool. you get to interact with these kids in this town at this at around this time and it is captivating if you were a fan of the series uh the other one is the story Dreamcatcher, which he wrote in the mid-2000s it's very pulpy it is a pulpy alien story It's filthy and gross, uh, but it's also (laughs) very compelling and entertaining. Don't watch the movie. It's terrible. The book is also gross and kind of awful, but also good. But it takes place in Derry, and there's a character in it who is familiar with the town, and there's also a lot of reference to Derry lore. So a fan of it would pick up a lot of references in Dreamcatcher. And finally... The story that King wrote after it is uh, the Tommyknockers, which we talked about earlier. Very, very brief moment where characters from the story have to go to Derry to procure, I think it's batteries. They're going through Derry and they're passing through. And one of the guys looks and sees a clown in the freaking storm sewer, the storm drain, as they're driving through Derry. And this is after the events of IT. So, oh. so guys, oh, no. know, we were talking no. about how maybe they didn't get them all. Listen, I mean, this could have been happening concurrently, like at the same time. We don't know. I almost want to go back and reread the Tommyknockers to really be sure. But I'm pretty sure this yeah. takes place after the events of the final battle. But also, please, let's take into account the King was on cocaine hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> We cannot discount
0: the Coke factor. I wouldn't
2: read too much into this only because of the drugs and because it's also when you are the master of your own macroverse, you're going to have ego. Yeah. You're going to do what you want and you'll like, just be like, I'm going to do what I want. I don't care. Let the reader sort it out. I think there's probably a bit of that going on too.
0: That's awesome. I And you've reminded me of one final really cool Easter egg is... The 2017 movie came out 27 years after the miniseries. Yes. So it kind of follows that wake-sleep cycle and the horror that it inflicts upon Derry. And I have to think it's somewhat intentional, but how cool that... We're able to do it. So, who knows? In 27 years, we might find out if something really happened or not,
2: guys. 27 years from 2017. Oh my God. Mark your out.
1: calendars right now, listeners.
2: I really hope it happens. Uh, this is one instance where I'm like, people being very grumpy about reboots. I think they can just be quiet with this because that's the whole aspect of this story is rebooting, yeah. right?
0: Right. Allison, I, I do want to ask you obviously, a huge king of file. Can you just speak a little bit to the influence? How did all of this work, particularly it, influence you to become a writer? Mm.
2: Oh, God. Long story short, I wouldn't be a writer if it wasn't for Stephen King. If I hadn't read Stephen King, I wouldn't have books. I wouldn't have stories. He was sort of like my Lovecraft in a lot of ways when he talks about it opened the door. That aspect of... Being able to tell the stories that were living in my head and the types of stories I gravitate toward and the way that they're told. Stephen King was absolutely the catalyst that told me, like, Mm. I want to tell the stories that make other people feel the way that his stories made me feel. Mm. And as far as how it was instrumental in that, it's mainly because... The way that he told this story, like, I'm not going to be held back by boundaries. I'm not going to be held back by taboo and convention. I'm going to tell this story the way I see it, the way I feel it. And it is absolutely fearless storytelling. And it has echoed for me, especially reading it as an adult, as someone who is learning to tell stories, uh, because I didn't start writing professionally until my mid 20s or thereabouts. So when I read it, again, I was actually pregnant with my first child. And I read it when I was bed bound, better than reading misery while being bedbound. Yeah, I read also read The Shining <laughs> while bedbound. I went through really the whole King library again when I was pregnant oh, with my first. And so reading it then and really paying attention to the mechanics of it absolutely blew my mind. It's still instrumental. I use it. When I teach writing classes for people trying to get into writing, it is instrumental in my teaching in terms of the way you can tell a story and how you should not be hemmed in too much by convention and by the linear, which I did say I'm a very linear thinker. But if people read this and they feel a little bit inspired to jump outside the lines and color outside the lines, that's worth it.
0: So huge. Speaking of teaching, King's book on writing is a masterpiece of storytelling yes. and just talking about how to tell stories, regardless of the genre you want to write it.
2: It is like half autobiography, half writing tutorial. And yeah. he has some pretty invaluable advice in it. I will say it's such an easily accessible and inspirational book for any person looking to write stories. It's
0: a great book. I took a writing class in college and that was our textbook and it was
1: awesome. We're tiptoeing around it, but this is like another big question I have for the two of you that I cannot answer. Are there other major differences that you two see between the novel and the screen adaptations?
0: That's a great question, Ben. There's so many differences. You don't want to get into the weeds of it. One that came up to me that I thought was interesting, Tom, which is Beverly's husband in the future, and Audra, who is Bill's wife in the future, they're both in the second chapter and they're introduced in the beginning when they're adults to they get the phone calls. Okay, gotta go. And then they just disappear. We don't hear from them again. In the book, as well as in the miniseries, they both come back to Derry. Yeah. Tom is mad uh, because, again, he's an abuser, basically, just like Beverly's father. He's mad at her and wants to come back and punish her. He kind of gets influenced and used by It. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's kind of preying on the evil in his mind. is coming back. She gets captured by It and is in one of those cocoons which is again portrayed in the miniseries and they bring her down and she's kind of okay in the miniseries, but in the book, she's catatonic. Bill actually at the end puts her on the bicycle. Oh no, they do this. I'm sorry. They do this in the miniseries. He has to put Audra on the bicycle and they're flying down the hill.
2: And she kind of comes back a little bit, right? Doesn't she come back? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's what reawakens her. So that happens in those two versions, but I just thought it was interesting. They introduced the characters in the movie, but never brought them back.
2: I agree with you big time. And I think that was a, an important subplot that I think the movie suffered a bit. I wish they could have fit that in. <laughs> I'm just going to mention my favorite scene from the book is when Mike, it's a flashback of a flashback, which is why it's so notable to me and what I remembered it so well. But he, as a kid, visits the site of the Ironworks plant. Mm. And there's a fallen smokestack and he goes into the smokestack. And horrific scenes, like, unfold from there. And there's this giant bird that, like, attacks. It's like a songbird, but it's giant. And it's, like, looking at him. It's, like, peeping in. It's a little eye at the end of it. I'm getting goosebumps even talking about it. It is one of the most horrific things I've ever read, like, in terms of just pure horror. And I was praying that this scene would have been in Mm. chapter two of the movie when they're going to find their artifact. I'm like, please let Mike go to the ironworks site i want this scene so bad and it didn't happen but i feel like that would have been a great scene for mike and it would have been a great visual as well but chris pinpointed a very important plot piece that didn't make it in that i think would have been fantastic if it had made it in because it really deepened the conflict and made it scarier for the adult portion of the book yeah i will say the richie scene when he oh Oh my god! There's something I forgot to With mention. Paul yeah, the Popeye Bun- thing, but also the Richie plus Eddie that uh, whole yeah. aspect. I don't remember if that was in.
0: It's not. That was completely concocted for the. I actually kind
2: of liked that. Although I do feel like they didn't carry it through enough because it wasn't earned. No, like the Paul Benny thing was like, I'm going to tell them about your secret. And then all of a sudden that gets dropped. And then at the end, we learn that Richie was in love with
0: Eddie. And it's, it's very subtle. He's on that lover's bridge and he, re-etches R plus E. Yeah. But it didn't feel earned enough. Like, I I didn't fully believe it. But yeah, that was a huge difference uh, and a liberty they took with the movie. I didn't see how it like really helped his character advance. So I was a little, I wish they handled it better. I
2: wish they could have carried that through from the beginning. It it felt like a thread that was dropped and very barely picked up again and then kind of petered out. So there were things like that in the adaptation that didn't hold up.
0: We can't get out of this story, I think, without addressing what's often called the scene. Yes. If you've read the book, you probably know what it is. If you've watched the movies or paid any attention, you might know behind the scenes, this is something that was wrestled with. Do we add this scene? I'm going to try to uh, address this in a a podcast-friendly way as possible. But effectively, there is a scene that is sexual in nature that happens between all of the younger versions, uh, the kids, in the book. And it's meant to be kind of a way for them to make their bond endure because they already start feeling it fade away after they beat it. They're lost in the sewers. They're not sure if they're going to get out. But it is a sex scene among 11 and 12 year olds. Yeah. Not surprisingly, not even addressed in the miniseries, though apparently they were considering whether or not they should have something like that in the miniseries for television in on 1990. Wow. wow. Yeah. I was reading a little bit about that. And they portray it, I think, in a much more probably modernly acceptable way in the movie. Um, and Allison, you and I were talking about this, yeah. right? There's kind of a stand-in scene for it that I think conveys the same idea, but by modern sensibilities is probably a better way to go.
2: Right. I mean, it, it is one of those things where you have to address sort of king trying to accomplish this coming of age uh moment between like the innocence of childhood and the transition and he himself has said that if he were writing it today he wouldn't have written that and i do believe that because there's no way any editor even the fact that king is very lightly edited as it is like he he doesn't get the editorial treatment that say i did Uh, (laughs) where editors actually are reading and telling you, no, do not do this. I don't think any editorial professional would have let that pass in today's world. And it probably barely passed in the 80s. But the movie version very much found a compromise between, hey, you know, let's acknowledge that kids of this age are exploring and figuring out love and sexuality and crushes and it's a weird awkward time so we're gonna like find a way to make this work but at the same time we're not gonna like go too far in that direction. But it remains very controversial. When
1: when you talk about the compromise, and I want to be really clear, I can continue to live a happy life without either of you ever telling me what this scene is from the book. I don't need to know. Don't need to know. (laughs) But I did make a note here where like in the miniseries, you know, they find in the the sewer of the sewer, they find the door to Pennywise's lair with the skulls. And Eddie whips around and he kind of admits that he's never uh, been with someone else. And it struck me like that was such a trope of, like, 80s and 90s, of kids or adults, to be like, I don't want to die a virgin. And (laughs) I I, I waffle on it because it's so disappointing to me of, like, that's a thing that writers have chosen to impart of, like, that should be a dying wish. That, like, the people are like, I didn't cure cancer or, like, I didn't stop climate change. It's that you didn't get to have sex. Like, that's your big regret of your life. But I get it. It's teenage kids. Kids are obsessed with sex and discovery at that time. I get that, but that is a trope of film and television at the time that kind of, like, bums me out that I wish,
2: like, we had reached higher. (laughs) Right, and (laughs) I I think, you know, we need to take into account, as we increasingly become more aware of the spectrum of sexuality and asexuality and all of that, like, obviously, there's so much more to becoming an adult than Genitals meeting. Uh, so, <laughs> genitals uh, <laughs> meeting. <laughs> it, it, the miasma of genitals. The miasma <laughs> oh of God. genitals. <laughs> I think this is, you know, and we'll get into this a little more, but I think this is definitely told through the lens, a very binary lens of someone who is a baby boomer, white male in a time when things were very much more a black and white situation. And so we have to view it through that lens. It's hard to judge it by today's standards and go, you almost, you really have to look at the scene and just step back from it and go, okay, this is weird. And I just have to accept that like, Those times have passed.
0: Yeah, and the other thing I would say, Ben, I feel like a lot of the articles and things that talk about it are very clickbaity. They call it a group sex scene. They make it seem very lurid. I'm not going to defend King's Choice in it. I will just tell you, I re-listened to it on my audiobook to be like, okay, I want this fresh in mind as to how it's portrayed because I knew we were going to talk about it. Yeah. And the only thing I can tell you is the way that it's written is with like an innocence to it that is not tawdry. It's not lustful it's really about a bond it's probably just portrayed in a way that in modern times we wouldn't think that's how that would be portrayed um and i think to your point allison probably even at that time still the same thing and so yeah i again i don't it's not tawdry you do not not get
2: erotica from this scene at all. I, uh,
0: it wasn't comfortable to listen to. I'll just say that much. Right.
2: It, it wasn't comfortable to read either, yeah, honestly. I mean, in the
1: post-Harry Potter world, the erotica that came out about Draco Malfoy and Harry Potter, like that was art <laughs> that I was concerned about. So I'm glad that this is not going on with it.
2: No. Not no, at all. Not at I all. don't. You're not going to have any lurid descriptions or anything like that, but it's clear what's happening.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's a great segue for a segment I usually occasionally bring up in math class that Chris usually rolls his eyes at, but I think is important. This idea of things that were okay to write or put on film in a certain time, but that don't work today anymore. And there are three that really stick out for me. I'm going to go in order of complexity. The first, Chris, I think you mentioned this too. There's the, the quarry scene where the, where the bullies find them all in the quarry and they attack. And the lead bully, what's his name? Henry Bowers. Henry Bowers starts threatening everybody. And right <laughs> out of the gate, he blasts an N-word. And then just drops a whole bunch of other horrific slang on these kids. And it was just such an arresting, shocking scene to see kids. Like, even again, we reference this probably too much on this show, but Stranger Things is really good writing of how kids talk to each other. And I don't, I can't recall any like shocking conversations of the language that was used, but this scene shocked me in a very uncomfortable very.
0: way. Well, Ben, I'll say this much. I definitely understand your discomfort because that word, as well as other racial slurs, are used a lot in the book, a lot. Listening to them on an audiobook version was very cringy. You know, I'm listening in my home with my window open. I'm listening in a car. And I'm like, what is someone going to think right. I'm listening to? And it's not just about perception of other people, but it was also my own discomfort of like, I don't want to hear this. these words. I don't want to hear these things. And You know, I I know that King kind of didn't shy away from what he called the true horrors that people face, but there's a lot of complications with using words, particularly when a white male creator uses terminology, words, and that kind of stuff. It lands differently and not in a good way. And I, I had trouble with that for sure.
2: And I will say this, it lands differently from when I read it as a young person in the 90s to when I read it as an adult in the 2000s. Like that's how much things have changed. When I read it as a kid, it didn't occur to me because when I was a kid, we're growing up with this language all around us. It doesn't phase the same way. You know, it's a bad word and you know, it's a word you wouldn't use, but you don't then turn it into that dimension of, maybe it shouldn't be used by this person this way. That's such a new nuance that we're only just now beginning to approach it in the writer community and in the publishing community. So we always knew probably like from the get, like, why does this make us feel so gross inside when we hear these things? We don't realize that it also makes us feel gross when it's coming from a white creator, a white male creator. And that's the same with the sex scene. I think, Chris, you said the scene, if a woman had written this book, This scene would not exist. That scene is the natural progression of someone living at the height of privilege. And I don't necessarily mean that in a derogatory way. It is just the product of that time and that mindset. And it's the same with the way King uses language. And yes, using slurs, even though in King's own mind, he's always talking about like, your character should tell the truth. Author should tell the truth. I completely get that. But you can tell the truth in so many ways without using words that are so stigmatized and so painful for people to read and hear. And that wasn't a consideration until recently. And so when we listen to these words and when we read them, we should think like maybe he shouldn't be the one saying that. If you're a white male or female author, honestly, in your writing about racism, be very careful about that kind of language because it, that is not your word to use. You can allude to those words. You can show the racism without telling it in those ways.
1: Well, and this this yeah. was even part of my point, but the insights that you two have just shared are like a perfect segue into my second of three questions of things that are concerning. When, right. when you talk about the origins of who said this, So you point out at the top of the show that, like, Stephen King drew a ton of inspiration from H.P. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. And in the early 1900s, H.P. Lovecraft wrote a lot of poetry and essays about white supremacy. Oh, yeah. And not about, like, the issue about it or the controversy, that he, oh, he believed was a racist. It, that he was super racist and bigoted. Xenophobic.
0: Yeah. Xenophobic against everybody. Like, that's yeah. the thing. Like, his xenophobia was practically oh, my god He even
2: hated the Irish. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. he, yeah. That's he, I'm saying he, it, he hated everyone.
1: <laughs> so so if this is King's story, and King draws a ton of inspiration from there, there's sort of like a, the roots are bad. Like, the soil is Poison, uh, where the inspiration is mean, coming
0: from. Uh, I'm going to fight you on that a little bit. Oh, okay. I, think you, I think you can take the core concepts that he created, and you don't have to take the nasty baggage with it. I can take the idea of cosmic horror. Like, that means anything that's influenced by Lovecraft, we can't enjoy. We can all have our own reckoning with the awful human being that he is, and you can not like his properties because of who he was. But to then put that on another person who takes an inspire everything is inspired by something and if we dig deep enough everything is awful <laughs> right like i mean i mean not to like trivialize anything but i'd feel like If the concept of cosmic horror can be taken from somebody else, and I mean, Lovecraft Country is a television show on HBO right now, yeah, and it's about racism. And so it's kind of a way, how can we take this racist person and look at it through a new lens?
2: Well, it's a black cast. It is a black cast. right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: So in some ways, it's like, we're going to take this and we're going to tell a different story and use the awfulness of this creator in this world and twist the story in a different direction and something like that I think is very powerful and so that's where I kind of I see what you're saying but I want to push back a little bit because I don't know that we can take it that far yeah
1: and I think I think there's a nuance of what I'm saying that actually was missed I'm not saying that we can't enjoy King's work because he took his influence from H.P. Lovecraft it's that H.P. Lovecraft had horrible beliefs and he was a creator and then by consuming those items those horrible beliefs may be buried within that content and therefore influence your own content that you create without you even realizing it. Hence his comfort in using these horrible slang terms and how he treats people in his stories. I
2: think that this is more of an issue, though, of King... Because King never himself, from his own point of view, uses the other, quote-unquote, like, other races and beliefs as the enemy... Like some might say Lovecraft's interpretation uh, of cosmic yeah, horror yeah. as the other. If you could extrapolate that to other races and other cultures. The problem with King and his use of language and things like that is he has bad guys using this language or unrefined protagonists using this language, but he very clearly portrays them as bad people using this language. The problem is that he's using the language that he has no business using. And that wasn't brought to the popular consciousness until very recently, mostly because most of the storytellers During this time in King's heyday, were white men. Mm -hmm. And so they were the conveyors of the message, of all the messages. Well, nowadays, if you go onto Twitter or Instagram or wherever there's a hashtag and search own voices, you learn that these are words and experiences that should be conveyed by authors of color. They are not words to be used by white people yeah i think that when we come to these stories from 20 30 40 years ago written largely by white men trying to portray people of color (laughs) or people who are racist they might be very accurate in the language that is used by racist Mm, people but when you start using those words that carries a weight And that carries a certain stigma and you got to be very careful and it makes people very uncomfortable for a very good reason. King is a very liberal hippie guy, but he's also a boomer and he's, you know, he's also (laughs) a product of that. He has though like a very strong connection to his younger family members and he listens to them. And I think he really tries to do better He's one of those guys that you can like train to be in the modern sensibility and he'll be open to it without feeling like he's being victimized. But when you come to a story of his that is a few decades old, yeah, you're going to encounter some uncomfortable mm-hmm. moments like that because yeah. that was not part of the sensibility back then. So yeah, that that's the one thing I would say that doesn't hold up as well. It doesn't age well. I came to the right people for this question. This is good. This is good insights.
1: (laughs) I I had just one last one, and it's much simpler. It's a little shorter. I just don't know if you could do it this way today. A scene that really struck me at the end of it. And it's this scene where Beverly gets the call to come back to Derry. And she's at her home with her partner. And just like all the other characters, she starts packing up to leave. And her partner comes in and seeing her pack up, they were just in the middle of sort of a, of a, of a lover's interest. And, um, and lover's <laughs> is probably too far. I don't feel like there's a lot of love in this relationship, but they were getting right. intimate. And uh, he thinks that she's going to leave to go cheat on her. And he pulls out a belt and threatens mm. to hurt her about this. And she proceeds to throw a variety of items and hit him and drops him to the floor with a headshot and then threatens to kill him and mm-hmm. then runs out the door. And in the 90s writing, and of course in the book, Beverly's a hero. She's a hero. But when I watch this movie through a common lens, only one person committed domestic violence in this scene and then threatened to kill someone. And that's Beverly.
2: (laughs) That was a poor adaptation, just straight up. Because the book really establishes the horror of Beverly's relationship with Tom. Like Ah, his manipulations, his abuse, his patterns of abuse. So that when that scene happens, when she finally turns against him and runs away... It's a lot more context. Oh, very much. I agree.
0: And her father victimized and abused her her entire life. And again, it's a very light touch because it's ABC miniseries, but he's a very nasty dude. And so she's somebody who's been her entire life with these men who have traumatized and abused her. So... In that kind of a scenario, I think you can see that's finally her finding her courage and voice to be like, enough is enough. You can't have your hold on me. I'm doing this
1: thing. Right. Yeah. It's just an unfortunate cut in the miniseries where you have no context.
2: They definitely feel like at that time, let's shortcut our way to a woman beating up a man. And yeah, Yeah. you're right. That is like shorthand for, yay, woman empowerment. But- I think they did a better job of this in chapter two, even though we don't see Tom again. But in that one scene, we see like the second of like, oh, you're going to go see your friend. Okay, sweetie, smooch, smooch. And then all of a sudden he grabs her by the wrist. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, here we go. And you get this little bit of establishment that here's an abusive pattern. And he's the aggressor, like right off the bat. She puts his ass down and then (laughs) runs away. That was a much more effective demonstration of what she was dealing with yeah. but i do love that yeah she marries her father eddie marries his mother you know <laughs> yeah
1: right the full
0: circle yep. good. yeah very much i mean i didn't think this story could get any bigger but we tackled some huge huge yes. topics there uh which are important because they're a part of this book and i think we have one last thing to do which is to take the story of it to math class and see how it holds up today. How My least favorite
1: subject. Uh, let's go. We just have to see if it floats. <laughs> <laughs> way we
0: kind of arrived at this is let's have allison kind of close out with the assessments because i think she has a lot to say and we might pick up some of those pieces first
2: so i will have as much to say
0: that's right we're gonna make your job easier for you uh <laughs> just be like ditto and then we're done <laughs> yeah. ben do you want to kick
1: off or do you want me to yeah no i think it's good for me to kick off because i have not read the novel so i will have the shortest amount to weigh in fair. on math class Fair, fair. but part of me not having read the novel is part of my evaluation of this as how it holds up today so on the positive, as I think the story in general is like really engaging. Like I said, it's really interesting. This idea of this monster that's been around for mi- billions of years, comes back every once in a while. These kids fight it. They come back later in life to face it again. And then all the underpinnings of like what that all the commentary that's going on with that, like it's a cool story. It's an inter- it's a really interesting thriller slash horror slash drama. Like the story is good. I think the part that doesn't hold up it's a, it's is that it's an 1100 page novel. Uh, and like, you know, in marketing, we talk about that. Uh, the number always changes a little bit, but like the average consumer's attention span these days is about like a second and a half. And so like you can convince people to watch eight seasons of Game of Thrones and put like those hours into it but it's v- it's extremely difficult to convince any kind of consumer to like listen to 45 hours of an audiobook right or like read 1100 pages of a novel and so how long it takes king to tell the story in the medium he chose does not hold up in today's sort of consumption culture about how people consume stories Allison, you had a great reference to another book he said where it's like a 300 page story in a 900 page book that's right. sort of the issue here i think that what challenges it today
0: And for me, I think at its core, I can't resist a Lovecraftian horror story. The concept of cosmic horror to me is so fascinating. It's why I loved Alien when we talked about it last time. The concept just lodges in my brain and I can't get it out. Uh, the atmosphere in this story is just tripping. There's all of these details. The monsters are truly terrifying. The stakes feel real. Some of our character, two of our losers clubs die mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and one of them went in a hospital and all are injured in some capacity. Right. This had a major impact on my childhood, little third grade Chris drawing terrifying clowns with fangs and claws and loving every minute of it. It really filled part of my fascination and love of scary storytelling, ghost stories, all that fun stuff. I do think this book suffers from being overly stuffed with unnecessary sections. I would also say this is probably an 800-page book, trapped in an 1100-page book, maybe even fewer. I think there's a more compact way to tell this story. And to Allison's point, I think it needs an editor's touch. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is probably the second-to-last draft, I think, of what could be an amazing, confined story. It's not always coherent, and perhaps by design. Uh, about what's going on, and it probably needs a second read or listen to fully grasp it. But again, to Ben's point, that's a tall order to do twice. Since I listened to the audiobook, I will say it's narrated quite well by Steven Weber, so I can't recommend it enough if you wanna listen to this story. Uh, but as I mentioned, some of those parts are hard to listen to. Some are just very dreadfully boring and other parts are profoundly uncomfortable. The scene was hard to listen to. Like if I was in a room with other people, I probably would have like cowered out of the room and hid. Yeah, right. The racial slurs, again, being very cringy to listen to. I imagine seeing them on the page is really kind of stunning, but to hear them is that much worse. I'm not sure I'll revisit the book itself. I don't know if I can come back to it, but I would definitely revisit the movies. I think I would even come back to the miniseries. What I appreciate the most where I feel the greatest impact overall comes from is creating a world much bigger than itself, where imaginations can run wild and where terrors can lurk in unsuspecting shadows.
2: Ooh. I can't follow that. No. <laughs> <laughs> you both brought up a point that I think speaks to the accessibility of this tale, and that is its bulk. It's Achilles' heel almost. If someone wanted to approach this book, they know they have a challenge ahead of them. That being said, I think if you want to start with either the miniseries or the movies, that will give you everything that you need. Because I think what all of this does is it encompasses what I think are very universal and very timely themes about childhood trauma and childhood horror versus adulthood and how we deal with those things from our childhood. I think those are things that are resonant, no matter how old you are. And I think the clown itself remains a very effective horror trope. That is why I think the movie did as well as it did when it came out in 2017. That was Around the time that clowns were coming out of the woods, you know, yeah. and scaring oh, people. Yeah, Remember right, that, guys? Right. <laughs> oh,
1: my God. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. That was in the oh, news.
2: Yeah. Uh Clowns are terrifying. That is a common theme. It remains that I went to a haunted house at Halloween a few years ago. Well, it was 2019, actually. It was at the a Mansfield prison where Shawshank Redemption was filmed. Ooh, wow. And now mm. it's, uh, you know, they turn it into a haunted attraction every year one of the best haunted house experiences you will ever have in your life, but a whole section of it is clowns and they're 15 feet over your head and they're like leering over you.
0: Uh,
2: The clown is very much a timeless thing of horror. So I think just revisiting it for that, but also I think it remains a vital part of the culture because of nostalgia. Nostalgia is such a vital thing nowadays I think that it calls to a period where there was more freedom to like ride your bikes around the neighborhood and Mm -hmm. go on these big Mm -hmm. adventures and kids today are watching this going wow people could just ride their bikes all over town and never get called home and their parents aren't there so there's a bit of that that goes into it too that I think that keeps it going because it talks to a time period that I think that isn't happening with kids and I think they're fascinated with it nowadays so I think that this story has it all, but the way that it's told and the time period it exists in is always going to have to be told with asterisks and and caveats. <laughs> yeah. And that's because it was problematic. So as long as we can keep doing that, I think the core of it will endure.
1: Well said. That's awesome. Very well said.
0: Now, Allison, we've mentioned that you are an author. I believe you have two novels that are out there in the world to consume, both an audiobook or written yeah. formats, right? Correct. That is Strings, which is the horror novel. Mm-hmm. Truly terrifying. <laughs> and The Other Mrs. Miller, which is a thriller. Fantastic, twisty book. Um, where can folks find these works?
2: You can find Strings on Amazon as an ebook. Uh, you can also find it at Barnes & Noble iBooks. If you want to listen to it, It's a fantastic audiobook. Absolutely love the adaptation, but that is on Audible only. The other Mrs. Miller can be found anywhere books are sold. Go on IndieBound if you want to support your local booksellers. Order a copy. It is paperback, hardback, whatever you want. And you could go on Audible or your local library uh, if you want to listen to the audiobook. And how many languages is it currently available? Uh, Seven or
1: eight, I think. Okay. Uh, How many pages long is it?
2: Uh, Eleven hundred, no, like three hundred and twenty. That's it very is, reasonable. That's it is very about, consumable. Yeah, it's it about a quarter fast. of the length of it. So you'll yeah. be able to get through the other Mrs. Miller pretty quickly. And the same Fantastic. with strings. It's about the same length. So I don't write long books. I can't imagine going over a hundred thousand words. Whereas it is probably about four hundred thousand words. So. And if people
1: wanted to keep up on like the kind of work that you're doing, where where, where can where can the kids find you on the social med?s
2: Find me on the Twitters at Miss Allie D, -D. M-S-A-L-L-I-E-D. You can find me on Instagram at Allison M. Dixon and sometimes TikTok. I might post a video on occasion under Miss Allie D as well.
0: Awesome. Allison, thank you so much. We could not have tackled this book without you. (laughs) You were a creative inspiration for me to do this topic. And I'm so, so thrilled that you joined us today to talk about this Sprawling masterpiece. Best so topic ever. Here. Yeah, Thank this you. was
1: awesome. Thank you for joining us. This was
0: brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> and we have one more order of business, Benjamin. We do.
1: So tis the season of spooky things. <laughs> Ooh. And as, as uh, I, I inhabit quite an older home, and man does it creak, and I walk around this house and doors are hard to open and they uh, open up. I hate that. Uh, my The basement <laughs> stairs I'm looking at, every step I walk up, this house makes a lot of noise. Which on one hand is very creepy, but on the other hand is a great alarm system because you know <laughs> if anyone is moving about the home that who is not you. And it struck me that something happened in the 80s that was very unique. There was a recurring theme, dare I say, a popular passion that happened all the time in film And that was oftentimes a being with a sharp object chasing others. Next time on 80s High, we are going to delve into many series and the phenomena of the slasher films (laughs) of the 80s.
0: I want to come back!
1: (laughs) We're going to try and figure out why things like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Child's Play, Mm. Why these movies thrived in the 80s We're going to find out where they came from Why they were so popular In the 1980s And how they hold up today That's a great uh, topic, Ben Oh Oh my goodness So next week on 80s High Lock your doors Lock away the power tools And don't go into the basement alone To fix the circuit breaker Because we're going back to the slasher films Of the 80s <laughs> Thanks,
0: everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts that help spread the rumor. Stay radical.